I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help was like, it's like, I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lima bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. Yeah. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play who with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love it, it feels just like this. Hey, Cats and Kittens, this is your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and we're back for another episode of The Debrief. Today's episode of Bad Faith was part two of the episode with Bosch, and I'm happy for that to be the subject of today's conversation, but as always, you can bring in whatever else is on your mind. I want to keep it a little bit short sweet tonight, since we did talk for, I think, four hours last week about uh, the first part of this interview, so... Let's try a little something. Let's try to keep our... I know I'm as, as much as fault as anybody else because I like to get into it with each of you individually. But let's try to get through as many people as possible week as we can today, given that we're not going to be here all night. Duncan, you are up first. What is on your mind this evening? Hmm, you're unmuted, but for some reason I can't hear you. Why is that? Can you hear me Okay. Oh, there you go. What's in your mind tonight, Duncan? Hey, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, um, you know, or successful caller in. Um, and well, uh, welcome, welcome, me? welcome. Thank you. Uh, so, I wanted to talk about just briefly um, before my timer goes off and I have to go take my cookies out of the oven. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to to talk about um, two things: one, the episode, and two, the Last of Us episode three, with no spoilers, because I think I saw you tweet about that earlier today. Yeah. I watched that last night, and like halfway through, I was like, "Oh my god, I think this might be one of the no spoilers. Don't worry, not going to spoil anything." I was like, "I think this might be one of the best episodes of TV out there, maybe." Like it was you know. so good. I literally was like, Ugh, "I don't know if I'm in the mood to watch." something scary before I go to bed, you know, is it late enough? You know, it's, it's so late. I'm not going to have time to watch something to cleanse the palate afterward. And then it was an entirely different vibe than I was expecting. Sad, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, oh, I'm worrying for different reasons other than being scary, but um, yeah, it was, it was just so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, it's uh, The Last of Us chat. Um, yeah, uh, so I just, I love it. I was so glad to hear or to see your tweet. I was like, oh my God, The Last of Us, somebody else. Like, I, I want to talk about it with people who've seen it. Um, so the episode, um, oh shit, uh, uh, my cookies. Oh God, oh God. Oh no, your can, cookies, Duncan. Can it, can it wait 20 seconds? How about you get I back in line, God, I'll, right I'll call you, I'll call you back. Okay, back all right, all right, all right, all right. All right. Okay, all right. Okay. So, sounds good. Thanks. Okay, look. Uh, Omar, what's on your mind tonight? Uh, hello, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Hi, Brianna. Um, I've called in a couple times. Just want to say hi. Hope you're not having a bad day this time around. I know the Vosh thing seemed like it was really overwhelming. No, I'm, I'm in good spirits. I had a five-mile run. I've had an early healthy dinner. I'm going to dive bomb into bed and actually get sleep before I go on Rising tomorrow. Go on. By the way, are you using headphones? Um, no, I'm in the car. Hold on. Is that better? Much better. Okay, sorry about that. Um, so I just wanted to give you props, to be quite honest, on the, the whole force to vote thing. I don't really understand why people make such a big fuss of it, because to be honest, Brenna, I think, and rightfully so, the reason you're, you're so um, focused on it is because force to vote is basically like politics one-on-one. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody who's really serious about about the left or any kind of political movement who who is not for a force to vote can be taken seriously. Even with Vosh and 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 most of these guys on on their bread tube, um, I don't know. I just want to let you know. Like sometimes I see you almost like trying to tear your hair out because some people act like they don't get it, but it's the fundamentals of politics, and I think it's the most normal thing for anybody to, to be trying to to fight for i really just never gonna understand why why people are so blase about it i mean i have my theory some more charitable than others you know it's it is hard to be proven wrong so quickly i guess maybe i I was listening to actually um i thought about clipping it but then i decided not to be messy i was listening to an episode of um crystal kyle and friends where they were ta- interviewing someone who I remember very distinctly at the time of course the vote was anti it. And they were talking about, this was an episode maybe two weeks ago when all of the Kevin McCarthy stuff was happening. And the guest first kind of took the posture of like, uh, yeah, whatever. I don't really know what's happening, but you know, like who cares? They're not going to get that much anyway, you know, kind of like trying to minimize the potential wins for Republicans as though that, makes it more okay that they were so against force the vote two years ago and no one said the word force the vote it was just such a yes. weird kind of gaslighting interview this is a guest that i like right like this was the one who i liked to listen to but it's like it, it, i feel like part of the resistance here and part of the anger that comes up when people bring up force the vote now even in the obvious context of oh force the vote's literally happening it's the number one news story in america like obviously we're going to talk about it it's because like a lot of a lot of the left were really wrong and they made a big mistake and they weren't just like wrong like people make tactical errors whatever but they dug their heels in and they personalized it and they beat their chest and they acted like everyone else was stupid and their brains were so big and they were so Mm -hmm. smug about it for so long that now like i feel like they they feel like they can't walk it back although i would like to point out like i would be happy to take yeah, totally, you were right. Like, I don't need anybody to grovel or anything. Just like, yeah, yeah, totally, that was like a miscalculation on our part. I get it now. I mean, it, it, and 
apart from that, I just think it's so obvious. Like, force to vote is so obviously just your basic fundamental politics. It's funny that you mentioned it that I also saw a couple other commentators talking about it. And it was so conspicuous. They, were, they wouldn't say the words force to vote. Mm-hmm. Even some people that were advocating for it back then, like, if you, if you don't mind me saying this out loud, I don't understand why neither Crystal nor Kyle or a few other people took part in the, the victory lap with you. It was so obvious. And then I even saw, like, a Kyle reaction. And he did not say force to vote. So it was just... I, I, I don't understand how people could not admit how obvious this tactic is for us to really get anywhere. It's, yeah, I don't, it's, it's I don't know. I don't know. I know it's worth it's worth talking about. I don't know if it was intentional or not or what's going on there. But, you know, Crystal and Kyle were such strong advocates for Force of Vote, and I really appreciated their advocacy. Kyle was on Bad Faith talking about it at the time. Crystal had me on rising repeatedly to talk about it. They both participated in the Jimmy Dore town hall. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was it would have been that much more difficult to like hold the line and have the view that I and so many of us had if there weren't other kind of heavy hitters in the left media sphere on our side. So, you know, I'm always like so appreciative of that, but I think it's worth, it's worth having a conversation. Like the person I was just referencing, like I've never podcasted with, but has also not been quite as virulent as, you know, hasn't been as aggressive as some people who are anti-force the vote. So I do think it's maybe worth reaching out to people who are in that middle zone, you know, who might be open to being like, oh no, I get it now. But I don't know, even I'm at a point where I feel like it's beating a dead horse. Although to your point, like the reason we keep talking about it is because it's the strategy. It's just basically talking about leverage. It's like telling someone, you know, stop. We're still talking about voting we voted last year we're gonna vote again why are we still talking about like it's just it's just a thing that is going to be recurring because it's just the 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 use of leverage point blank period that's all it is yeah it's it's fundamental politics and and struggle for power i mean it's really 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 simple um so i mean i just want to give you props on that and hopefully you never feel bad about carrying that as your flagship issue because i'm like i said i i I just think it's really the, the most fundamental point and i mean I know when we mention other podcasters, it's not necessarily like to pit people against each other. I mean, that's obviously not efficient, effective at all. Um, to make it quick, the only other thing I kind of wanted to ask about, and it might be a little bit controversial, but it, it's with the whole ordeal, also with RBN. I just want to make a, a, a general comment, I guess. Um, when I see all these leftist commentators, yourself, Door the vanguard and all that stuff. It just seems sometimes, and you even brought it up with Vosh, Brianna, how it seems people are more invested into, I don't know, like the, the, the internet movement itself rather than actually like real politics. It's just so divisive sometimes and I feel people get caught off, caught up on being self-righteous before being about power or about building a movement. And it's just really demoralizing as of recently because th- there's no cohesion. There's no solidarity a- amongst people that agree on more than 95% of, of issues. And I think amongst the left, it's a problem that people would rather be right about an issue rather than build solidarity for a movement. Yeah. I mean, look, I, 
Sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I mean, I know they're pretty sick and all. I love RBN when we first started. Yeah. But it's been crazy past, like, week and a half. I'll say this. I, um, you know, there's, I'm obviously aware, and, you know, we included in the episode some of the things, to take Vosh as an example. There's no love lost, right? He said plenty of things about me that many people would see as um, precluding any conversation going forward right like okay i think i would be very justified in saying i'm never going to talk to this guy and i probably wouldn't have to be honest um if he hadn't been uh booked on the hill and then we ended up having this conversation and i felt like we needed to have a follow-up conversation to explain how that even happened that being said it does strike me as interesting and maybe this is a fault of mine maybe this isn't actually a good thing about me but it does strike me as interesting that as much as I disagree with Vosh and as offended as I have been by the very personal statements that he's made about me, I'm able to talk to him a certain way. And um, I can keep keep in mind and have a sense that ultimately, even though I substantially agree with disagree with him about any number of things, but there were moments in today's episode in particular, like the first half of today's episode, we were like, I think getting to some really important points of agreement. I appreciate that even though, you know, I think it's wrong that he taught his audience out of force of vote. I think it's, you know, wrong. His position on Ukraine is very wrong. Like that in the grand scheme of American politics, there's still a lot of simpatico. And to the extent that he's pulling some right winger to the left and wanting them and, and encouraging them to like Medicare for all and some basic social you know, social Democrat policies, hey, good. And if that can exist between someone like Vosh and I, where there's so much bad blood, I don't know. It's just, it is frustrating to me that we can't be critical of each other and like draw real meaningful distinctions between our points of view without it being like the WWE. Yeah. I, I, and I think, yeah, that? and I think you're the only one that gets that because you even told them, like, if some of my viewers jump onto your channel, but yet we're all fighting for Medicare for all, it's still a win. And I, I really think not, like, almost nobody gets it. Like, no, nobody's serious about it. There's just a really lack of seriousness with talking about some tactics like forced to vote between solidarity amongst people who all literally agree on, like, more than 98% of problems and choosing to alienate your potential allies because you rather be right about a certain issue or topic or whatnot. I just wanted to give you props, Bree, to be honest. I think you're one of the few people that gets it. And if people start coming after you, I think it's because they know they're, they know they're full of shit to be quite honest with you. I mean, the most normal, I think the most normal people in, in this country that, identify on the left are pretty much on board with 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 most of the topics that you're covering you're always on the beat so thanks for that and keep i don't know keep your hopes up because um it gets crazy out here once in a while thanks omar i appreciate you keep the faith also i completely lost track of the first caller and i've forgotten their name but i feel like if i saw them in the queue i would remember and i'm not seeing them in the queue so remind me Get back in the queue if you're not already and remind me what your name is in the chat so I don't miss you and your cookies. Maybe you're not ready for me yet. Um, but I'm going to hop around. I'm going to do hop around, front, hop around, front. You know how I do. Um, 
let's go to I just uh, Afini, you were you called in last time and left before I was I had a chance to get to you. RBN was evoked, so that also seems only only right and good, although I don't I'm gonna put you on the spot. You don't have to talk about any of that if you don't want to. What's in your mind, my friend? Hey, first of all, text me back, girl. What, what? Number one. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, Omar kind of took what I was going to say already, but I mean, there are a couple of things um, that I found especially frustrating in the past week and a half. Um, I mean, as you know, like I've been doing a lot of traveling, so I had to like kind of crunch all of like, I had to crunch like your episode with Vosh and everything else like into like today. So I literally just caught up today and I'm watching the second part now. Um, But one thing I want to say is, People like Vosh and, you know, even some of my friends on RBN, I ain't going, I ain't going to talk too, too much. I'm not going to do too much. Um, But they are chronically online. Uh, If I've learned anything in this past week, watching this interview with Vosh and just seeing like that team sports mentality that we all say on the left that we're trying to fight against, you know, Mm. but for some reason, we're all falling into that same trap of, like it's it's like it's like we're recreating the duopoly within our own community, and I just think mm-hmm. that shit is wild. Um, you know, there are people like yourself on the left who are interested in like actually building, who would rather like to make their complaints into real actions, into real policies, into legislation of some kind, into an electoral candidate, whatever it is. We are trying to actually build a movement, and that means sometimes you have to talk to people or be in coalition people with people that you don't always agree with, and. You know, I, I feel like I always go back to, like, you know, my organizing experience in Maryland, but in Prince George's County, Maryland, I'm doing a, we're, like, uh, my organization trying to build out a housing campaign for formerly incarcerated people, um, basically trying to, like, get real health, housing equity for them. Mm-hmm. And I have to talk to elected officials who I cussed out on the campaign trail last year when I was working <laughs> for Michaela. And that's just, sometimes that's just what it is. And I think that, I've said this before, but I just really think that we have lost our ability to disagree. Mm-hmm. And even like, and I feel like it shows like a deep lack of intelligence and a deep lack of research. If the only thing you can say about somebody is like baseless personal attacks instead of actually talking about like the real substan- like the real substantive differences between our policies or between our theories of change and what we want to see, um, you know, what our freedom dream is like. I, I can understand like there are people that want to completely disconnect from the electoral system as a black person. I know like we hate identity politics. I'm going to be completely real. I do not think that black people have the, have the privilege to check out of the electoral system because 70% of the black people that live in this country live in a Republican electorate. So policy is effectuating their lives every single day. So even if it is on the local level, I would rather see people, you know, on the left actually focusing on, on on local policy on things that can actually change building local movement because we can influence national policy y'all y'all are saying fuck the federal government great fuck it that does not mean that we just sit on the internet for three hours four hours a day and fucking complain without actually doing any real action like yeah i'm i'm just i'm genuinely tired of that and you know and that's what shama said too by the way like it's it's it's, I think it's lovely and heartening that Shama has become kind of has occupied that leadership space that was left by Bernie. And, you know, I love how much 
more exposure it seems she has now than a couple of years ago and you know it's it's a, definitely a benefit but it does seem to me sometimes that people cherry pick a little in the <laughs> cherry pick <laughs> the things that come out of her mouth a little bit because you know she she said very clearly in multiple interviews that she doesn't think that people that the left should sit out and ignore electoral politics now she doesn't want people to sheep her folks back into the Democratic Party. She doesn't like Marianne as a particular candidate. All of that stuff is also true. But she said, don't sit out. And so part of what's been so frustrating for me is the jump to um, making arguments that are based in people's kind of credibility or, um, you know, something about me is that even if I suspect X, Y, and Z about someone, I'm not going to make... I'm not going to make the, you know, Chank Uger is bunk because he took the Katzenberg money argument. I'm not going to take, I'm not going to make the Jimmy Dore is a grifter argument. I'm not going to make the Jill Stein was paid by Putin. Like, I'm never going to make those kind of arguments, even if at times there's evidence for them, because it doesn't persuade anybody who agrees with the take. Someone can have a take that's accurate at the same time that they're negatively influenced by something. Someone can have a take that someone that resonates with someone at the same time that they're on the take. And so I just I think it lowers the level of conversation because we're not actually talking about issues anymore. We're just making accusations about people. Why am I saying this? Because in the context of, you know, all that this is going on, like, I, you know, I don't think that anyone needs to. You know, I, I've I'm in, I've done many episodes about how I'm a PMC. Like that's not, yeah. it's it's just like who's arguing this? But the point of the matter is, am I right or wrong? <laughs> am I right or wrong that regretfully, even though I've been very much endeavoring to push people to mount a candidate for the last six months and talk about what other prospective candidates exist on the left, that mm-hmm. the only one who seems likely to run is Marianne Williamson. And that while I'm a firm Green Party candidate voter and will likely vote for the Green Party in the general election in 2024 in a primary, I'm a registered, I'm, you know, and I should have checked what I am in D.C., but in New York, I'm a registered Democrat because you had to be to vote in a primary. Mm-hmm. There are only so many options in the primary, just in the primary, and that therefore I would pick the most left person in the primary. And if Marianne Williamson is the only person who runs that would be Marianne Williamson, not Joe Biden. I'm certainly not going to haul my ass to anybody's voting booth to vote for Joe Biden in a Democratic <laughs> no, no. primary. So people cannot do that. People can do that. People can choose not to, to, to vote for her, but not to spend money on her, which I can think is completely understandable and defensible mm-hmm. given how much money Bernie raised and let folks down. I think all of those things are right and true. I have not advocated for anything. I'm just pointing out, I've only just pointed out but I think it's a net good if she runs as compared to it just being Joe Biden and like Pete Buttigieg or whatever. I mean, and I if people feel differently that about that, that's great. I don't understand why that topic has resulted in quite as much vitriol as it has. I mean, I also think that Marianne should run if there's nobody else that's going to fill that spot. Um, you know, and I texted Marianne after I watched that interview and we had like a whole 45 minute conversation about our difference between uh, differences between Palestine and Israel. Like we were like, this woman was going back and forth with me on text. And even though I think her, her views on Israel are abhorrent, I really do. Mm-hmm. I still think that we agree with 95%, 92% of what she says. Her Ukraine takes is also horrible. 
of what she says. So why not try to organize her into our position, especially since a mostly like most of the people that are going to support her would be people that would be more anti-interventionist, more progressive on issues like Palestine. Like, I just I don't really think that there is a a real reason to go after that woman personally when there are I mean, I feel like there are just there are things policy wise that you could talk about in a substantive, a sensitive and respectful way. And I'm just really, really tired of the left eating our own before we can even actually make any progress. Like the police are still shooting people. Like if y'all don't want to talk about electoral politics, cool. Talk about all the violence interruption groups that are cropping up all across the country. I'm a part of one. I'm training in one. Like let's, let's start doing like productive shit. Or like, I was really interested in the back and forth about the two state solution. I I confess that that's not really my issue. You know, I don't know as much about that as I should. And I would love to hear an episode about why it is, why it is that, you know, Marianne's backing a two-state solution is so abhorrent and unrealistic and all of these kind of things. I, I would like to know more. Um, but, you know, look, I think at a certain point, like I, I voted for Howie Hawkins in 2020. I don't know anything about Howie Hawkins. I'm not especially impressed by Howie Hawking, ha- Hawkins. Like no shade to Howie Hawkins, but I really liked Jill Stein. I didn't feel that way about Howie Hawkins. I voted for him because he was the, the left choice. He was the Green Party choice. And so like, all I would say is if that is how people feel about Marianne, like I don't, I'm not going to spend a single minute of my life defending anything that's ever come out of Howie Hawkins mouth. I don't know what's ever come out of Howie Hawkins mouth. I had a call with him once at some point during 2020 when I was unemployed, but I couldn't like, that's not, I, and you're not going to catch me dying on that, any kind of hill of whatever Howie Hawkins has once done in his life. And I mm-hmm. kind of feel the same way about, you know, Mary, I mean, not exactly the same way. Cause I, I actually affirmatively like aspects of what Marianne represents and what she's, you know, the policy supports and all of that. But just as an analogy, I think it's possible to say like, I'm glad Howie Hawkins ran and occupied the space for me to vote green. I'm glad there was a green party candidate that existed for me to vote for. And I think similarly in the primary, you're not worried about sheep hurting people. It's a primary. Don't vote for in the general if you don't want to, but it's a primary. And that there's so much energy and angst. Like there's more time being spent right now talking about Marianne than Joe Biden. (laughs) The man who's the president and probably is going to be the president next time around because we can't get our shit together. Don't say that, Brie, please. I'm sorry. I don't mean to put it out there in the world like that. But it's just I mean, it's just honestly, it's Ron DeSantis. If anything, if any if we don't get our shit together, it's going to be Ron DeSantis. People are not like black people are not voting for Joe Biden again. Young people yeah. are not voting for Joe Biden again. It's gonna be Ron DeSantis. If we have to fill the spot, or we're all like we're already in a fascist country, but you know, I, I got we got a little bit of rights, we got a little freedom paper shit. <laughs> like, come yeah. on now. Like, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I I hope everybody can, like, get past this, but I got to say it's very emotionally exhausting. And while I am prepared psychologically to um, be a bigger person through some of the things that have been said, and I don't enjoy it, and everyone has their limits, that's all I'll say. I mean, bitch, you better than me. You know that. (laughs) (laughs) Because you know me, I'm going to hell. You feel me? I'm going to hell with it. But um, anyway, 
Um, text me back. Hopefully we can have dinner this week. I'm not traveling for this month. I will okay, be good. traveling a lot next month, but all right, cool beans. I will. I'm sorry. You know, I'm negligent. I treat my text messages like an answering machine, which I know is psychotic, but that's my, I would call you, but then you don't like, but you don't answer. So I treat like, everything <laughs> like a messaging machine and my messaging box has been full for literally years. And that's part of my strategy as well. <laughs> Mm, mm, mm. I'm sorry. Like, this is how I manage my anxiety. I look at my phone and deal with it during short bursts when I feel like I have the emotional energy. I apologize, but I do want everyone to know that it's not personal. I am, 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 am triaging for my own mental health. <laughs> um, all right. It's always such a joy to talk to you, Ephini, and I will text you back. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Who is, who was the person who was the person in the queue? Who was Cookie Guy? Where is Cookie Guy? Why am I struggling to find Cookie Guy? Okay. Karthik, you're up. And someone help me figure out where my cookie friend is. Hey, Bree, What's up? I think I talked to you once a long time ago. Yeah, um, yeah of course. You used to call in. Didn't you used to call in kind of regularly? No, I think I, at most I talked like twice or maybe three times because I was always like intimidated by the long line. But anyway, um, so I saw I, I I was able to stomach some of your interview with Vosh like fifteen minutes at most because mm. you know for obvious reasons and th- there is something off with that guy that guy is like a fed or 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 he's a fed wannabe. Well, you know, I I would ask you more what you thought, but you only listened to fifteen minutes of it, so <laughs> I have a uh, three, sorry, <laughs> a three hour know. interview. My, okay, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I I just like okay. Well, okay. What, what I what what I was gonna say after that was um. So I honestly don't know why like you get so much hate. Like to be honest, like I I get why TYT gets hate. I I can understand why uh, Jimmy Durr gets hate, but I don't get why you get so much hate because 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 you always seem like you're trying to be as nice and as polite as possible. I just don't understand. I mean, I think that's part of why. I don't know. Who knows? At a certain point, it doesn't matter. It's just this, it's the slow slog. Like people ask me why I did this interview. And I, part of it is just like, I don't think it would have, ha- it would not have happened if not for Vash coming on rising. But also part of my thinking through it was, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, have a pretty small YouTube channel. There was a lot of growth at first and it completely flatlined. You know, I, that's, that's where things are happening. That's where you get the biggest reach. And Vosh has a much bigger online audience than I do. And the people who listen to him, the same way I kept trying to explain to Vosh that it wasn't about trying to convince Marjorie Taylor Greene of anything, but to demonstrate that you have some credibility and genuine investment and a real issue to her followers, some of whom have a genuine commitment to these shared concerns, not all of whom, maybe not even most of whom, but some of whom do. I feel the same way about Vosh's audience and that when you know that someone has been out in the world's you know, misrepresenting you in pretty grievous ways that it's worthwhile to get a chance to present yourself to their audience and make your own case. And, um, I feel like I do, if I do 50 episodes in a row and then one of them is like this, there's always someone who wants to be very loudly unhappy about that. But you, you know, there are many videos that I'm sure that you like that only got 2000 <laughs> views on YouTube. Um, apparently you weren't watching those, even though you say that you wanted to see those, <laughs> but uh, you can go and watch all of that back catalog. But like occasionally, yeah, 
this is going to have to happen because I think this is actually important. It's not just navel gazing. It's there have been thousands, you know, half of the left media sphere has been making disingenuous arguments about force of vote for two years. And if someone is willing to actually come face to face and talk it through someone who has been at the head of all of the disingenuous arguments, I think that's a worthwhile project. And if you disagree, I, I'm sorry. We'll be back to usual programming shortly. Uh, no, no, no. I, I definitely agree with you. I, I definitely think that there's like, some uh you know well not some like uh, even like a, a lot of worth in what you did actually I, i'm happy that you know you uh did, did engage I, I would just like that guy there's just like something like deeply wrong with him like uh, may, may, maybe it's because like i really hate tyt and that guy seems like a, a gen z jank like i can't describe him uh any better yeah i mean you know we we really did disagree, but I would I would urge you. Um, I don't know if you're a subscriber or not, but the first like 30 minutes or so of part two, maybe 40 minutes or so, I was actually very pleasantly surprised by the number of things we agreed upon, and including one very 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 important thing, which is what ultimately the effect of so many leftists taking the posture of, oh well, I can't support that approach unless it's 100% guaranteed to win. Or, you know, it's unrealistic to be talking about that because it won't happen tomorrow. That that mentality is demotivating in a way that is, I think, frankly, at this point, a, a greater obstacle to the left's ac accomplishing things than anything the right or even, frankly, Democrats are doing right now. And and Bosch, like, understood that and agreed at a certain point. And even, you know, even though he still rejects force the vote because of its association with Jimmy Dore – you know, acknowledged that it was a fine idea. I think he used some words like that. And that, you know, we got very close to him acknowledging that he played some role in that fine idea not being executed um, because of this kind of doomer mentality that exists on the left. And that felt productive and good, and I appreciate him joining and getting us to that point. Yeah, I definitely hear you. Well, uh, I just wanted to say, you know, uh, uh keep trying and keep doing what you're doing okay i, I think perfect. you're probably like in terms of like people i think you're like one of like probably the best person on the left so don't that give up very sweet of you to say keep trying thank you Carla. keep the faith duncan how the cookies turn out they turned out great can you hear me okay Yes. Good. Sound good. Uh, and also, thank you for your for your patience and um, <laughs> your <laughs> accommodating my my cookie needs. Uh, what kind were they? Uh, chocolate chip. I made them dairy free, uh, so they weren't as good as they could have been. But you know, what's the what's the dairy? Do you just use like almond milk or something? Or yeah, so I used uh, chocolate chips that are mm -hmm. made to be dairy free, and then the butter I used a substitute, uh, some kind of substitute. I don't know. It's not as good, but, um, mm. you know, I, I make them like the regular way all the time for me, but both of my roommates can't have dairy. So every now and then oh, nice. I make them dairy free. I um, avoid yeah. dairy, but when I do things dairy free, <laughs> it's like fully there's butter still in it. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. A hundred, like, you know, <laughs> but, I mean, like, hopefully like a vegan or something that'd be different. <laughs> but like, if I'm trying to be quote unquote dairy free, all that means is like not real milk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, if it's baked into something, it's like, does it really it count? Comes off. Like, you know, yeah, it yeah count. like, it, yeah, it all comes <laughs> off in the, the oven wash or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for uh, for bringing me back up. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I said 
the thing about the Last of Us episode. Great. Uh, but we can circle back to that some other time. Um, <laughs> so uh, I listened to both of the Vosh episodes. Um, and um, so first of all, yeah, he doesn't want to talk about Force the Vote because he knows he's wrong. Um, so there's that, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> um, kind of, I, just, I can't get... I, like, I, there's some other explanation I'm open to hear, but that's kind of what it feels like to me. And it's not just yeah. him, by the way. It's all No, over. oh, 100%. Um, but I had this this other thought, and I apologize if I'm repeating somebody else from maybe the last call-in. I don't, you know, it's possible I'm not the first one to have this idea, but <laughs> I think it maybe what's going on is y'all just have very different projects that you're doing mm-hmm. um the reason that bad faith is my favorite podcast is because you know when you have guests on and you you talk to the to your guests um you're interested it seems in like you know talking about like well what should the left do let's kind of exchange some back and forth about like what's the right strategy kind of how do we approach electoralism given this and that and these developments and it's like you know kind of a matter of like trying to get at the truth you know um, at least that, that's that's my impression. Um, mm-hmm. And with Vosh, uh, I've only seen him in these two episodes. And it sounds like he just has this totally different project of like trying to score points or like, you know, do that, you know, like you mentioned, like that debate bro kind of kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like create content. Um, no offense to content creators, um, mm-hmm. but so, so oh, I feel like, you know, there's, there's that fundamental, the the <laughs> no, yeah, hundred percent. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so like, I feel like that difference in project is maybe partly what's, what's going on there. Yeah. I mean, I think the, a more, whether or not it's warranted, the more, a more charitable, um, vision of his project and one that I think is shared by a lot of liberals is harm reduction. Hmm. And even if I get past the, oh, you just want to do a podcast, oh, it's the internet grift argument, which, you know, again, I'm not saying that those arguments don't sometimes carry water, but, you know, the people who like him and believe what he's saying aren't doing it because they're invested in him getting clicks. They they really believe it. So I would need to take, I need to address that head on, right? So mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of people who are sincerely invested in harm reduction, who agree that the risk of Donald Trump or whomever, whatever Republican is legitimate and high who aren't willing to be accelerationists. So the interesting Vosh said he was once an accelerationist yeah. and ultimately when asked to describe his theory of change, he said he thought it was basically going to come through climate accelerationism. So, I mean, which one could argue means, well, if you're going to do accelerationism, you might as well just do it instead of waiting for the world to burn. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know what the, difference i don't know yeah um yeah i mean yeah yeah sorry yeah so like and 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 you so we have to just we have to address we have to address that you know so that's part of why i I know i sound so pedantic but like having a conversation about what you do in a primary is very different than a conversation about what you do in the general if you're talking to someone who is very concerned about trump winning and -hmm. this was this was a huge thing in 2016 right oh we can't afford to risk it on bernie because donald trump and it's like, mm-hmm. okay, like, oh, you know, Bernie, Bernie can never win. Bernie's not going to win. I'm like, okay, it's the primary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of mm-hmm. course, Bernie's not going to win if you don't vote for him in a primary. <laughs> Just vote for yeah. him in the primary. Like, what, what is happening? Like, everyone's this- a political analyst of like, oh, <laughs> that, like- <laughs> that gaslighting, that exact line of argument is precisely why we're sitting here today. I was so fucking triggered. <laughs> 
mm-hmm. in 2016 mm-hmm. by a million and one people who wanted to say, well, Bernie's, Bernie's not going to win, so why vote for him in a primary that I literally became a journalist? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's enough to drive you up the wall. I mean, and, and, and one of the reasons I'm glad that you had this debate with Vosh was that, you know, when you kind of laid it all out on the table, you could say, like, well, if not putting risky pressure on Democrats because of how bad the Republicans are, then like, well, OK, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to that point of view. But what is the plan? Like, like right. what, what what is Vosh's timeline for us getting Medicare for all? And right. and like specifically, like, what's the like, if not this, then like, what is your kind of positive idea it's something that came up in the last column, which is like th- that kind of line and lines like it tend to be demobilizing. Mm-hmm. Like, well, no, you shouldn't do this. Well, what should I do instead? Like, well, mm-hmm. you know, you'll know it when you see it or I, I don't know, but it's, you know, I mean, so it, I thought yeah. it was that there is a lot of value in kind of laying it out there. Like, okay, like, yeah, that's true. But what now? Like, what should we do instead of pressure on the left or whatever? Yeah, it, mm-hmm. the I think I think the when Force the Vote actually was happening, I think a lot of people were, you know, persuaded by the argument that there is a plan, that the squad members, you know, they had mm. something up their sleeve and they were mm-hmm. they said they wanted to save political capital and people were willing to trust that. And even I, there was this corner of my brain that was like, hey, well, maybe I'll be proven wrong. Like, all right, let's mm-hmm. see what they got. Like mm-hmm, AOC mm-hmm. says she's saving up for $15 minimum wage. Okay. That fight started cool. in, Fe- in February. <laughs> we didn't have to wait long, right? February is when we started getting um, Biden's proclamations about how the parliamentarian probably wasn't going to go for it. And then lo and behold, I think it was the very end of February that we got the notice from the parliamentarian that it was a no go from her. And then the whole fight went down in March. The vote mm-hmm. it went down in March. So we didn't have to wait very long. And then if you maybe say, okay, she didn't reserve a, her fight for 15 political capital for the fight for 15. Maybe there was something else. There was this moment where they were maybe going to hold the line around bill back better. I mean, but after two years of this, well, surely they wouldn't use it to, to break a strike, a railroad strike, right? Like, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, that would be just completely crazy. Right. I mean, if you're saving up your political capital for something, at least show like, this is like a slam dunk opportunity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh-huh. look, that's the thing. Like, it's been proven now. It's been proven that there was nothing up their sleeve, that there was no secret plan, that there was no alternative to what we were presenting. And I said this, I said this, you can look back at any number of videos that I did at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. My obligation to prove the merits of this plan diminish dramatically when you can't present an alternative. Mm-hmm. When, the, when the risks are low, there's like literally no downside or that Nancy Pelosi doesn't get to be Speaker of the House. No one's not eating tonight because Nancy Pelosi isn't Speaker of the House. When there's no downside and there's no alternative, the onus is on you to explain why you're not doing this. And there's just mm-hmm. no excuse. Just trust us. Just trust us. It's complicated. Yeah. Like, right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there's only a point oh 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 percent chance of anything good happening from force the vote. As mm-hmm. long as the risks are zero and the alternatives are nil <laughs> yeah and that, you, better yeah. a chance than hell than no chance at all and you know that thing with um with the railroad with the railroad strike i thought that was a very clarifying moment because mm-hmm. uh with the squad specifically because like you know okay well if you're not going to force the vote if you're going to save your political ca- it's basically what you're what you were saying you know if you're going to mm-hmm. save your political capital surely it's at least to you know 
really use this as a comms moment to differentiate yourself from the Democrats mm -hmm. who are breaking a railroad strike like it's, you know, like 1910 or something like, you know, like if you're not going to do it, then then like I, I think that it's a very clarifying moment for for the left uh, with regard to how we approach electoralism, specifically like in, you know, house races um, and like like, I, I really think that what that means is there does have to be some sort of, you know, to use this word accountability from an organization like, mm -hmm. I don't know, Socialist Alternative or DSA mm -hmm. or whatever it is, some some organization that says you need to do X, Y and Z or else we're, you're going to lose our support in the next election. So you have to force the vote or you have to, you know, vote against the Iron Dome funding. Or if you you do, you can't just like. Uh, mm -hmm. cry and then not tell us what was going on or, you know, like whatever yeah. it is. So, so like, it feels like a clarifying moment because like the connection between an organization that has some kind of pull over elected officials, like has to be there in a way that it's not right now. And I think and that yet, that's what's clarifying like, about this. I mean, what Bosch said very plainly was that he kind of doesn't even believe in that accountability system because anything mm. that would hold elected officials accountable threatens them electorally and puts and empowers the right right so like by definition if he's against anything that ever could conceivably empower the right he doesn't believe in accountability for democrats mm -hmm. he doesn't, he doesn't so, believe in withholding yeah. a vote for democrat he doesn't believe in publicly criticizing a democrat he doesn't believe in a negative media cycle that might implicate a democrat mm -hmm. so no one's going to court his vote ever it's exactly like you were saying so like why should why should any democrat ever care about anything he says no matter how much he complains about democrats because he's already committed to always voting for them blank check no matter what yep so he has no power yep that i mean like i like i don't want to be here. like if if there were a path forward that didn't involve you know threatening Ilhan Omar or whatever. I mean, politically threatening, obviously. I don't no, no, yeah, of course. Um, I would happily take it. But again, I'm sitting here waiting for someone to say something affirmative, not come up with a bunch of mealy mouth excuses for why we can't do anything, mm -hmm. but to say something affirmative. Oh, well, here's this other way we can get get the squad to do what we want them to do. There is none. Mm -hmm. Pre you know, whatever. Um, what is it? Power concedes nothing without demand. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it is what it is. Like, I, I don't know what to tell people. I'm not like sitting here thinking, oh, I just want to <sighs> ring, I want to ring some progressive necks today. Yeah. And that's why it's so frustrating when you, when you get people, you know, like running cover for, for the squad. It's like, well, are we on the same, are we doing the same project? Like, what do you know that I don't, you know, who did like, uh, who was that? Did you have a, was it Glenn Greenwald you had on or somebody else? No, mm -hmm. it was, um, somebody you had on who uh who was uh like giving cover to the squad for this uh for i think it was the railroad thing i'm you know my oh, memory certainly wasn't going about it um Ryan uh, Grimm, uh, probably Bri brian Graham. thank you yeah i get different names <laughs> mixed up um yeah <laughs> uh, uh ryan Graham. um so that that's partly what's so frustrating about about that is because like if i can see you know i mean i'm i'm not like that much smarter than anybody else like if i could see that the squad is is running cover for democrats you know real actual like you know moderate corporate dems then why are we like why is why are other ostensible leftists like running cover in the media sphere for the squad i i'm not at this point i'm not articulating any any new ideas that you have not already said <laughs> more well, articulately no, than it's... me but it's true yeah, yeah. Yeah. And look, I think we are slowly, slowly chipping away at people's recognition of what has to be done. And that's a good 
thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's frustrating. Sometimes you're going to end up in a fight with Noam Chomsky and Bosch and (laughs) Sam Cedar and Chank and a whole host of people, some of whom you really like and admire and others you don't. And Mm -hmm. um, look, I I'm sincerely appreciative of, of Chank and Sam and others and Bosch who have been the least willing to come head to head and vet what they, their positions. And Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. next time I do this, I I was reflecting on this. I think I've gotten to a point where I need to condense down to a certain number of questions that kind of put the other person on, on, on deck for having to explain their theory of change. Because all I do is endlessly Mm. explain mine and then Mm. they just sit there and try to poke holes in it. And it's like, okay, like if maybe the goal is just to expose the extent to which you just don't have anything. Yeah. Like what's your plan? Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I suspect that what they'll, they'll say is, well, it just takes, uh, we got to organize. Um, <laughs> and we're not sufficiently organized and we just got to organize. Uh, and here's some organizations. I mean, not even that. They don't even like direct people to specific organizing efforts or talk specifically about like what the goals of the organizing are per se. Mm -hmm. And then they turn around and they shit on people who have organized things like the Medicare for all marches. Mm. And it's like, even, even as much as I think that the people's party stuff has been a debacle, like I hesitate to even go in the way that some people, other people have, because not everyone involved was at fault. There were a lot of people who sincerely were committed to a third party effort and, you know, they did a lot of work and I hope they rally and clean house and figure out how to get themselves going again because I'm never, I'm never gonna shake a stick at someone who tried. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'll get out of here uh, pretty soon. So we, so you know, I appreciate you taking my, well, my, my second call now. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I want to be mindful of the other people in the queue. Um, so uh, I just want to also uh, very briefly just say on my way out, um, I admire your restraint in that <laughs> uh, in these last two episodes. Um, for not asking him if he if he you know stands by his previous statement about something about subhuman piece of shit was it? Um, yeah, I mean we, know, we talked like, about it. I mean it yeah came yeah up, it, came, it he, came up. He says it's a joke and whatever. I'm not like that's not. <laughs> I mean I don't care what he says about that. You know. Yeah. But like um, I, I, it yeah. was bothering me in the in the first half a little that he was. You know he 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 did that like kind of tone policey thing to me. He was like, well, I think you're getting, you're getting kind of hotheaded. And it's like, well, let's like, talk about hotheaded because you've done like seven videos. I mean, I, I, I'm just pulling a number up out of my head, but yeah. like a lot of videos about me, like talking about me for hours at a time using very vile language. So we're talking about people being hotheaded and mm-hmm, losing their temper mm-hmm. and being triggered by the fo- the things that other people are saying. Like, let's put this into, into context, my yeah. friend. Like, yeah, Brie, I think you need to calm down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like give me a break. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm going to get out of here. Thanks again for taking my call. Um, I have more thoughts on electoralism and the left, but they can all wait for some other time. So uh, call, thanks call so back much. in for our um, Last of Us season finale. Uh, oh, my discussion God. Viewing. You know I will. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. All right. Keep the faith, Duncan. Thanks for calling in. You too. In. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Claire, you are up. What's on your mind this evening? Can you hear me? Yes, Claire. What's on your mind? I mean, these internet boys are just obsessed with you, huh? I had no idea. <laughs> I just, 
everyone else, I never hear about you. And, and then suddenly you're <laughs> detailing all these people who are coming after you and they're so rude to you. <laughs> like, yeah. well, it's hard yeah. enough watching you with Robbie, who I think genuinely like value, values your opinion and listens to you. Yeah, but that's my homeboy. He's fine. Yeah. Well, no, he needs to learn how to not interrupt people and, and just take over the conversation but yeah i mean he's he's not the problem here but i just it's so rough like listening to that and then all these other people are being openly condescending to you it's just but you don't need me to defend you but well, I, I i appreciate it you guys have been very supportive and it it doesn't you know it, it means something the the grand scheme of all of the things that get said at the set on the internet that are negative are very much balanced out by all of the supportive things that many of you say. So I, I don't, I don't want to skip over that. I very much appreciate it. Yeah. I just, I don't want you to get discouraged. <laughs> gotta, gotta balance things out. Um, but yeah, I wanted to uh, bring up, um, I think you talked about this briefly in the, in the second part of the Vosh interview. Um, and we were kind of talking about it last time I called in. Um, so, okay, I've been thinking about this, you know, Biden list, um, and I was kind of, like, looking through, uh, some of his, like, 2020 campaign promises, and also, uh, like, PolitiFacts is also keeping track of, like, recent things that he said, and, like, you know, breaking it up into completed, you know, working on it, stalled, whatever, and, I think I think my biggest concern is that I, I just don't want to do the thing again where, like, we have to wait another four years to be like, see, like, he's not going to do what we want. Mm -hmm. Like, I just I think that, you know, looking at just what I looked at briefly today, I think there's enough there to be like, but look, he said this and, you know, either they the Democrats can't get this done or they won't for whatever reason like um i'm just thinking of you know i went to i went to college in la but i grew up in texas and i'm i'm back here and i mean i very much i very much miss la right now um but it's like i'm i'm living in houston which is a, a liberal bubble but mm -hmm. like we're we're dealing with like even the the democrat um politicians that are in place like if they're not like embezzling money <laughs> or building lifted parks and removing bus stations and not dealing with the homeless like they're getting smacked down by the republican politicians anyway like we had a uh, lena hidalgo is a i think like harris county judge in 2020 she tried to institute a harris county mass mandate and then greg abbott smacked her down which i don't even know how he's able to do that but it seemed like he was able to do that mm. um so i i think i was i was hearing what's her name uh afini is that how you pronounce mm -hmm. it was talking about how you know i don't want to misrepresent what she said so correct me if i'm wrong but kind of saying like you know the people who live and specifically black people who live in these red states like they're the most vulnerable so you know, to burn everything to the ground or just leave it to the Republicans is really dangerous. And like, I think we're all, you know, very, you know, aware of that and want to be sympathetic to that. But I just, I don't really see, like, 
I don't really just, I just don't see a path out of this, you know, without just completely divesting from the Democratic Party. And like, I'm hoping that if we do that, then the liberals will actually have to negotiate with us and then it won't have to be, you know, it won't have to get as bad as it could get. But I just don't think like, I feel like fascism is really sweeping the country and sweeping the country, like in half of the country, at least. And the Democrats are not doing anything to save us. So I just. Yeah. Well, look, if I were in charge and I'm not (laughs) my, (laughs) my recommendation, like I completely agree with you. We should not have to go through another four years of Biden being lying Biden and not following through on his campaign promises, which were already mediocre to begin with, but to have to like prove it at a later date. It's exhausting to have to say, well, Biden said he was going to do this and he didn't. And then have a bunch of pod tape bros tell you, well, he really meant to, or he would have liked to, but filibuster or cinema or something, 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 which is why I focus on executive orders, not because they're the most important things that he could do, but because those are the things that there's no excuses that people can mount as to why he's not doing them other than he just doesn't want to. That is why student debt cancellation has been such a focus, for instance. So, If it were me, I would say I would get a little list together. I would go over to the American Prospect and, you know, cherry pick some stuff out of David Dayen's list count of promises, find the things that are the executive orders, um, focus on some stuff that's kind of timely, maybe some criminal justice stuff that could get done by executive order. Sherilyn Eiffel made a specific list of items on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that could be done by executive order. Um, during that leaked call that I'm always talking about, uh, a call that happened before Georgia. So they didn't know if they were going to actually have the Senate. So she was specifically like, these are things you can do by executive order. And he slapped her down. I would get all those things together in a list and get some high profile people who have the public respect, some William Barber type of people. It would be lovely to get the squad members on board, but, (laughs) and uh, say we have a coalition of people who voted for you last time, are prepared to vote for you again, but who are dramatically disappointed in how you've handled COVID, how you've handled student debt, how you've handled um, the public, ignoring the pub- public option, how you've just funded the police harder, like all of this stuff. And here are a list of demands. And you can organize around them. You can have events for various issues. You can focus some of the protesting that's going on, on right now about Tyree. Like you can do all kinds of things focused around this and, and put, put, put some juice into this, put some leverage into this, because now all the things we're protesting and are mad about are connected to an electoral outcome. And this can have, this doesn't have to be just for the president. This can have broader electoral implications. I love how much Sabi and Afeni and others talk about local politics, but like to have this bolus of things that Democrats really can do and nobody can argue otherwise, no matter what the composition of Congress is, is an incredibly powerful leverage tool. But then you got to actually have to follow through. And it would also be nice if we had candidates in the alternative to vote for if Biden doesn't fulfill his promises. So it doesn't look like just stay at home. Like those votes are actually registered in a, an alternative party and not just a Republican party. Right. Right. Or, yeah. or non-votes. Because then you get smeared by the media as like secretly Republican. But like that, that to me is like the obvious path. Like that to me is like the obvious what's in our control to do in the immediate future. Well, I guess my question is, I was just thinking about, I, I think, you know, 
I think kind of what you were saying about balancing it with like, you know, also hustling hard to get those third party candidates available to us. Mm -hmm. But I, I was just thinking about like, basically, well, I was, I was thinking about, you know, like how rhetorical a gesture should this be to kind of like mitigate us having to wait, you know, four years to kind of be like, gotcha. Um, like I was thinking like, should we, you know, make it lefty enough where we know there's no way in hell that Biden would even lie and commit to these things and see like, look, like he's never going to help you on these things. Um, because I, I guess I'm just concerned that it would be a situation where he would just say like, oh yeah, totally. I'll do that. And then, you know, well, if it's an executive order, you can just do it. Like you have to do it now first. Well, but we're having the problem with uh, student debt relief where it might get slammed down. The, the, the problem with student debt relief is that he did not do it by executive order. Oh, the, okay. the, the, pro- the problem is that if he had day one of his candidacy just canceled all student debt, there is no, there's nothing that the court system could have done about it. But because he chose to means test it, it delayed the actual policy going into effect and gave conservatives time to get it through the court system and basically enjoin it, right? They wouldn't have been able to stop it if he just did it. But to just do it, he wouldn't be able to means test it. And he chose means testing above getting the policy actually enacted. And this is something that the debt collective folks were warning about the whole time, that that this is the thing that can happen. And so again, like the the issue is not that it was an that that this is something that oh I said it was an executive order, but then actually it got held up by the courts. No, if he had just done the thing and picked up the pen and canceled student debt on day one, the, or or on day a hundred, but just do it instead of saying we're about to do it and here's a form you have to fill out and now someone because you've announced the policy they can sue on the basis of your announced policy, we wouldn't be in the situation. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, well, like, should we start, like, a bad faith Google Doc or something? <laughs> we can start compiling these things. I just, I, I, you know, I feel like there, there is, like, a lot of uh, organizers here in this chat, but I guess I'm just, like, confused about, you know, who I sh- should be paying attention to and, like, where to go. Like, I, I don't know. Well, one, one, one place to go is, you know, Shama's new org, Workers Strike Back, which regretfully in all of the uh, internecine podcast fighting of the last week or so has kind of gotten buried. <laughs> um, the attention has been drawn somewhat away from that effort. Uh, but I, you know, I know that they're looking to really build it out. I know that they're looking to build out also like a, a media comms arm. I know that they're obviously primarily focused on organizing and I would like to see them kind of, you know, working with other groups, unions, et cetera, to have the pull to make the kind of threat that I'm describing, electoral threat that I'm describing. So like, if there, you know, it would be more powerful to say like, these are our conditions. If you had, I don't know, multiple major unions committed to this, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, maybe one of the conditions should be, here's one of the things that Biden has the executive power to do, extending sick days to railroad workers. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 
Um, That's what? How many did we say? 200,000? I'm sorry for getting the number, but there's a hell of a lot of railroad workers. It's one of the largest unions we've got. I, I would I would love to see them put their pressure, you know, sign, sign their names to this this list of items that are non-negotiables for us to vote for Biden. I want to be clear. I, I, Brianna Joy Gray, <laughs> I'm not voting for Biden. <laughs> but, no. you know, I think that it's a, because I, you know, because I live in D.C. and it is what it is. But, you know, generally speaking, like, I think there needs to be a credible threat. I mean, most people obviously did vote for Biden. And I think there needs to be conditions on that. That's all. Yeah, I'm already starting my little, like, individual uh, social media campaign where I just try to yell into the void that I'm not voting for Biden, seeing if I can catch anyone <laughs> who's going to <laughs> um, Okay, yeah, I feel like those were all my questions on that, but I just wanted to bring up a little little fun thing. Um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody brought up you, or you said, I guess maybe now you're going to do uh, the Last of Us discussion app. I was going to suggest you do a White Lotus uh discussion app because you were just saying um you know that maybe you needed a little bit more of a break and um you did let's see you did the nope episode and then you did the the kanye episode which i feel like was a little lighter even though the the topics being discussed you know can be happy um i do enjoy talking about pop culture and with with the kanye one i think that's it's very substantive as well i i gotta say it, it, there's this really weird dynamic where obviously most people also enjoy those episodes because they're more highly watched and there's more comments on them. But also there are very as a very loud minority that likes to tell me that I'm a sellout and wasting my time anytime that I'm not like literally talking to, you know, a, a worker or an academic or a politician. Well, maybe and you should so, wonder. Go ahead. You know, so, some people have wondered, I went on a little bit of a blocking spree over the weekend and people are like, why did you block? And it was like such a mild comment. And it's because, you know, I don't feel like hearing it. <laughs> like, I don't feel like hearing that because there was one episode out of every 50 that you didn't think was serious enough. You felt the need to get in my mentions and tell me that I'm not working hard enough and that like all of the content wasn't to your specifications. Like you're, it's completely in your right to feel that way. And it's completely in my right to not have to see it. <laughs> Maybe you should so wander, wander over I'm sorry? the chat row. Um, because they, they do these kinds of episodes all the time. I just started listening to, uh, they're doing a Law & Order SVU one that's pretty fun so far. Oh, that sounds um, fun. Yeah, so maybe you should, you know, you can run away from your haters <laughs> that way. <laughs> I, just, I just get worried about you, you know? I feel like you do so much for us. You take a lot of shit from people all well, the no. time. Well, no, look, at the end of the day, what am I I'm sitting on a sofa on a mic <laughs> pocket? You know what I mean? Like, I, perspective, perspective. But, I, I, you know, it is, look, it is, it is what it is. And I occasionally exercise my right to be able to log on and read comments about last of us's episodes without seeing weird strays back and forth that ruin my mood and throw my evening off kilter so that's all it is but i will say i i do really enjoy um pop culture stuff i fantasize about simply just being like an interior design channel if i'm really (laughs) (laughs) so like i don't need any any encouragement um and definitely there's going to be a valentine's day episode coming up i need to get on that actually um a follow-up to our dating on the left men version our dating on the left women edition and then we're going to do a gender non-specific group of folks uh 
coming up this Valentine's Day. So I think that should be right. a fun light episode. Very exciting. All right. Well, I think that's that's all for me. Um, thanks for, for talking to me. All right. And thanks I- for calling in, Claire. Keep the vape. Of course. You too. Bye. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Um, how about Samurai? That looks like a new face, a new Avi. What's on your mind tonight, Samurai? Can you unmute yourself? Yes. Um, could I actually, I'm so sorry. Um, could I ask that I be put like next in line? I'm so sorry. No I'm worries. Hop back timing. in the queue, Sam- okay. Samurai. We'll get back to you. All right. I'm coming to you, Ladybug Lance. What's in your mind tonight? Are you with us, Lance? Goodness gracious. Is it like, should I not hop around? Should I just go straight through the front to the back of the line? Because people are like not aware. People are living their lives as they sit in a, in a three-hour queue. LOL. All right, Lance, going once. Lance going twice. Let's try oh our friend a our a our friend a calling in from india let's let's get him out of the queue so he can go to bed (laughs) how are you doing a long time no chat hello can you hear me loud and clear good morning i mean lately i haven't had to go to bed after talking to you guys because it's been a good nice early morning each time okay good Uh, i'm glad to hear it then what's in your (laughs) mind i I'm largely in a dismal state because uh, smug, no. dude, smug dude bro voices trigger me. But I think <laughs> I, I can start with a compliment and then I can get to some dismal stuff and get your responses. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I first I want to validate these kinds of episodes. I mean, from, from my vantage point, given that I'm not in the States and I don't have sort of the nitty gritty policy wonk context, uh, the episodes I... First and foremost, uh, where, you know, it's with like thinkers like uh, Chomsky or Vijay Prashad or Richard Wolf, etc. Because then, you know, I get to learn. And mm-hmm. then next to that would be these uh, like episodes where leftists of different stripes converge. And it's, you know, um, different sort of approaches to leftism emerge. And so that's illuminating in its own way. So I love this kind of stuff. Okay, I'm glad. I, I got to say, me personally... I also enjoy the the kind of I like be, finding the bottom of my own argument. I like being able to, to actually moot stuff. It helps me to understand why I believe what I believe better and identify various approaches of attack and argumentation. And I, I don't know. I find it to be like interesting, an inter- a more interesting mental exercise than some other kinds of episodes. So selfishly, yeah. I enjoy it, and not because of the spectacle of it, because it. It feels it feels like I've just gone on a good run. You know, it feels like I'm stretching. I completely understand what you're saying. But in the sense, Key, does it, this is like, I mean, I can see that it's you steel manning your own arguments, but does it feel lonely that you're in the, you're doing it good faith and you're trying to steel man and the others are like trying to get points? I mean, sometimes, but like, for example, I don't, I don't feel that way as frustrating as I know it was to listen to. I don't feel that way about say Ryan Graham. Like not everyone mm. who I have mm. these kind of debates with, I think is operating in bad faith, even True. if I disagree with them. Even Sirota sometimes, you know, 
he'll come on and we'll substantively agree and then he'll say something and I'll be like, oh, come on, Dave. And like we go back and forth. And so like there are a lot of people I disagree with on the podcast. Yeah. But I think they're in good faith. Some, several of the candidates we, that we spoke to over the summer, um, Amy Vieja, et cetera, like we ended up having this kind of, you know, substantial disagreements with them. But I completely believe they're good faith actors. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We shouldn't let uh, a few. Yeah, I'm doing a halo effect here. So uh, mm-hmm. my first question, sort of question, is that um, a big part of uh, what I have understood you do when it comes to uh, sort of your public appearances, be it your, I mean, your radars and stuff, is uh, you have a position, but then you sort of do the sort of the uh, to use the pushism, the strategy to uh, mm-hmm. figure out like the audience and hence the package um and uh, given that the medium is the internet you know like a clickbaity title maybe like a marjorie taylor green which mm-hmm. is sort of a you know a few levels of um strategic targeted thinking build, building on a position one has why but it seems that the responses you get like like with Vavashar, like with Cenk, etc. It's like almost like those extra levels are seen as all part and parcel of your position. All almost as though you support this woman, act you know, act in earnest, as opposed to using her for a different end. Yeah, it's it's confusing to me. I mean, it's part of the reason why they, excuse me, why they. <clears throat> Sorry, I got something stuck in my throat. While they, while they think that way is they, I mean, and Bash said this several times, he doesn't actually believe that there is any sincere portion of the population that, say, agrees with Marjorie Taylor Greene on, on the FBI and also has anything in common with my perspective on the FBI. And the conversation got a little confusing because he fundamentally actually doesn't believe in defunding the FBI, yeah. no matter who says it. Walsh is surprisingly conservative in many ways, including this, like, the Dems are not so bad kind of stuff. Yeah. So, like, but if we if we were to pretend, like, for half a second that he actually supported the policy, let's, let's call it defund the police and not defund the FBI, because he does, I mean, he kind of sure. supports that. At least reform the police he supports. Sure. So, if, 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 he doesn't believe that there's, like, any Republican anywhere who agrees with any part of this, whereas my perspective is, okay, like, obviously, most Republicans are still very gung-ho about backing the blue. But there has been this push for, let's say, ending qualified immunity. That's come from the more libertarian wing of the party. You know, mm-hmm. d- that Donald Trump was uh, enthusiastic about. That Van Jones was shepherding that whole thing through with Trump and um, Kim Kardashian and all of that. There was, like, some real police reform happening through the Trump administration. Like, mm-hmm. then you, And, and I don't, I'm not trying to overstate that. I'm not trying to say it's most Republicans. I'm not trying to say anything like that. But to the extent that it's some, hey, I've got nothing else better to do. I can talk to people who already agree with me or I can talk to them. And it's the same way on down the line. And I think that part of the issue is that he cannot see why someone would frame things the way I would frame them. Because he doesn't see there any use fundamentally in reaching out to that audience because he doesn't believe there's a scrap of good faith anything in that audience. Even though we all know that there's the Obama to Trump voter, even though we know that so many of these people were Democrats in recent memory. So many of you guys call in and talk about how, oh, my uncle used to vote for Obama and now he's hardcore Trump and da da da. Like, I don't know how many times we have to go through this, but for some people, they just, they, they just got really, um, 
Trump derangemented. Mm. And they can't, they don't, they've completely lost any confidence that there's any kind of nuance, you know, weird mixes of views and vantage points among the American public. And moreover, they don't, they, they don't respect the audience enough to believe that they can be persuaded or that they're, they can understand that there's like a nuance between what they think, and what Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks. And that while they're happy that Marjorie Taylor Greene is maybe opening the conversation, they might agree with me more than Marjorie Taylor Greene about whether or not Trump should be accountable, mm. whether or not elites should be held accountable. Same with this IRS stuff. I mean, the IRS stuff, the feedback that I've gotten is like really remarkable to me because it started out with people hating me because I said, obviously I just came out, you know, on the show when it came up, I was like, no, we shouldn't defund the IRS. That's obviously stupid. Like the IRS needs to be empowered to go after rich people. That's why you need to fund them more. That's why the Democrats are funding them more. They didn't want to hear that at all. Because the narrative they had been getting is that the the IRS is going after poor people and that should stop, which is true. Hmm. <laughs> but like, if if you're being told the IRS is going after poor people, and I'm like, oh no, actually give them more money and they'll magically go after rich people, that that's too much of a leap. So I changed my approach, and I spent first half of a radar talking about how horrible it is that hmm. the IRS goes after poor people. Not only poor people, poor black people who they don't really care about, but that's okay because I can't admit it because I'm on their side. Hmm. Right? Oh, you're so right. In fact, the most the most audited place in the world is this town in Mississippi that's like 99% black and the, you know, it's the average income is $25,000 a year or whatever it is. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She gets it. This is horrible. Oh, yeah. Okay. But look at this graph. That shows that 10 years ago when the FBI had more, sorry, the, the IRS had more funding that millionaires and billionaires were taxed at 30% higher or audited at 30% higher rate. Isn't that crazy? Mm. Okay. So if there's a legitimate concern here, how do we figure out how to design a policy that maybe caps the number of poor people who can be audited at the same time that we empower the auditors to go after rich people and have the resources they need to do so? Does that sound like a plan? Oh, well, maybe someone should put that plan fucking forward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone did? Their name is Bernie Sanders? Great. <laughs> mm. But you have to spend that time with people. And like the reactions were like night and day in the comment section. Mm. So I have a question, which is that uh, like I'm not very familiar with Vaush's content at all. But is there, is there a stated goal? I mean, in the sense, like with you, it's very clearly movement building evangelizing leftist thought uh so i mean i don't i don't want to you know mischaracterize but you know is there a stated goal at his end or is it just to have his thoughts out on the internet i mean i don't know i don't know man like a lot of people i think are okay so the good faith reading of this is that i think a lot of people (laughs) were really hurt and embarrassed by their belief in bernie i think this is a little bit what i it's my psychological evaluation, armchair psych evaluation of what's going on with like, let's say Chapo is that people who, whose genre is kind of cynicism and jokes Mm. genuinely believed in Bernie and were like giddy and, and, and really trusting and believing in something. And then when it didn't work out, they felt so burned by that, that they just refused to back anything sincerely ever again. And so to that end, I think that a lot of folks aren't aren't like in a position where they want to say, I believe in this. I want this to happen. Mm. They've retreated it into just being full commentary without mm. putting themselves in the role of having any kind of leadership position or 
having opinions about what the movement should do next or what would be good for people. And I understand that also, like if you're just a podcaster, it's, you know, no one's wants to be like, Oh, I'm, I'm Malcolm X. Now I'm Jake. Guevara. Mm. Listen to me. Like it's, you know, if it feels gross and hubristic to put yourself in that position, but I think there's a line between, you know, fully, you know, fully just like doubling down in cynicism and refusing to like even in, internally understand whether or not you have some broader goals here besides just making entertainment and content. Yeah. Um, and you know, crowning yourself the leader of the left movement. Like there has to be some middle ground in there. Absolutely. And I think, okay, I think this is where I might take off on my rant a little bit, which is that uh, it's, it's uh, like what you said, I mean, to get burnt and perhaps find safety in what's in, in the, in not having, I don't know, not being hopeful, not being earnest for, uh, you know, for risk of being naive or, or I don't know. And it's, it's, to me, the experience I had with Rosh, given that, you know, I projected onto him several such, uh, and this is, of course, my word and not yours, but several such insufferable people that I have met. My experience was that one goes through the phase where one is enjoying the one's command over language and stringing words together and having thoughts and reading books and putting them out there and, I don't know, showboating. But... Uh, and then one moves past that into where, you know, you decide that some things matter to you and you're okay to care and you're okay to care publicly, etc. And yet you still find yourself having to butt heads with <clears throat> people who are at a stage which you've surpassed. Uh, so, and like, what do you do with that? It feels like no, ma- no matter sort of the evolution one has, the level is always decided by the idiot in the room. Well, it's Vaj pretty openly, and maybe he was joking, you know, again, it's so hard to tell, right? The whole thing is if everybody's joking and cynical, then you never know where you stand. But, you know, he said pretty clearly that his interest is, you know, in making a show and he's an entertainer and that is what it is. And so, you know, he's allowed to do that. But I think it's good that he's, you know, honest with the audience about it, at least in the context of our interview, because there are people who I'm sure who watch him who don't see him that way. Just, you know, just like there's other people on the left who I kind of low-key think are just making entertainment, but mm. whose audience, like, sincerely thinks that they're doing something. And I think that can be dangerous, right? Just, like, yeah, I would just be honest about it. And like, like, they, if, if Ch- like I, lo- I love listening to Chapo, right? Like, because mm. I, I like listening. I want the pop culture take. I want to hear about Avatar. Like, and I don't think that's pretending to be anything that it's not. And I think it's honest and it's good. And it's I enjoy it a great deal. Red Scare. I listen to Red Scare and... You know, I feel some kind of way about a lot of stuff that gets said on there, but ultimately they have a certain simpatico. I find it entertaining. And I know they're not trying to lead anybody's movement. And I don't think anybody who listens to that show thinks that they're doing anything political at this point. I think that's honest at at the end of the day. But other shows, and, you know, we can all guess at which ones I might have in mind, are clearly kind of movement oriented, but will not have any affirmative goals and will not take any risks and will not make an affirmative, you know, say anything affirmative about how they think things should happen. And I think that that is what's so dangerous. Like as much as the New York times wants to criticize red scare or whatever, like red scare, isn't what's holding back the revolution. (laughs) Like it's, it's other shows and and it's other, not just shows, but mentalities that are, are like funneled through those shows. 
Absolutely. It is it's and it's it is dangerous because people's minds and ideologies actually get shaped by such figures uh, and when it's entertainment which uh, if it's entertaining as incident as an incidental fact but in substance is actually purporting to be about you know thought and policy and ideology then it it's a, the, i don't know slippage there scares me but anyway i'll stop you keep doing you this is this was great uh, i i don't know how you have the fortitude to put yourself through conversations like these but uh, we are all grateful for it well i appreciate you especially calling in from such a different time zone eh? a <laughs> <laughs> absolutely keep the faith keep the faith Lysol, what's on your mind this evening? Hey, Brie, what's up? I'm good. How are you? Not bad. So I, I wanted to echo um, what you were talking about with Worker Strike Back. It really kind of felt like that was going to be some sort of launching launching point. I was like personally pretty excited. I feel like a lot of people, especially people in the chat, were also pretty excited. And then like we stopped talking about it later that day and haven't gone back since. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does Am I being paranoid to feel like part of that feels like it's on purpose? No, I mean, I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's intentional, but it's an unintended consequence. Like there's only so many hours in a day and I just, I, I, I want to be very careful because I don't want to make it seem like I don't think there's room for substantive criticisms of say Marianne, but there's, there's, there's only so much time that's being spent making content and at a certain point like there's trade-offs and it seems like the casualty of some of the last couple of weeks i mean i I will say this rbn has been one of the most consistent champions of of shama and socialist alternative and i think that's a really wonderful thing um but what that also means is that you know if they get distracted by other stuff then it ends up, you know, that's like a, a platform that was really, really good for social determinant shama that just is temporarily un, unavailable. And so, you know, they're allowed, obviously, to talk about whatever they want to talk about, and I'm sure they'll get back to it. Um, but I I was also hoping that this was going to build a little bit on that on that show. I also haven't done a follow-up, right? Like, I have a sh- my show's only twice a week, and the last two episodes have been vouched, so I could be similarly criticized, but... I mean, I just assumed you'd already reached out to them and be like, would you like to say any of that to my face? Because that's kind of your style, right? Honestly, I just am not. It's, I, I have had my fill. So I just hope they work through whatever they're going to work through. I mean, it's, it's so much more painful when it's somebody who's coming at you from the quote unquote left or like theoretically to the left of you. Um, a, a lot of the interpretations I've heard on the charitable side is it's kind of like growing pains like you know i'm really hoping they don't feel like intimidated in the you know because it feels like we've already had this conversation you know i had the crew on over the summer and cj said everything that he had to say about marion like literally nothing new has been said so i don't have anything to say i mean the only the only thing that i would like to point out is that people keep saying why do why do we keep bringing up Marianne? Why do they keep pushing Marianne? And it's like Marianne's indicated she is probably going to run. I didn't pick Marianne. Marianne's running. You know what I mean? Like Marianne has an exploratory committee. If Matthew Ho had an exploratory committee, if Tulsi Gabbard had an exploratory committee, if Bernie Sanders had an exploratory committee, 
if Ralph Nader had an exploratory committee, if Jill Stein had, we'd be talking about those people. So like every time I hear that logical fallacy come up from one of them, it grates on me because it's like you're basing your entire infrastructure of anger is built on the idea that people are focusing on Marianne because they want to push Marianne. And maybe that's true of some folks, but like you're completely misidentifying why she's in this conversation. It's because she's running. (laughs) And I would love to talk about somebody else. And in fact, I had you on my podcast six months ago to talk about who it could potentially be in the field long before Mary had any kind of exploratory committee or we knew that this was going to happen. And because of y'all, the second I said the word, Mary, I said, Marianne, um, what's her face um, in California, Katie Porter. Like I threw a bunch of names out. I thought it was going to be a thought experiment. What would it be, what would it be like if it was Cornell West? What would it be like if it was Chris Hedges? Da, 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 da. But people hear the word Marianne and they are triggered. And that's why she's such a topic of conversation. So I, I would the- love people and they keep bringing up like Chris Hedges. Why are we talking about Chris Hedges? Chris Hedges isn't running for president. I would love it if Chris Hedges ran for president, but Chris Hedges isn't running for president. So what do you want the conversation to be? Draft Chris Hedges? Okay. Get a petition going. Reach out to Chris Hedges. But he's already said he doesn't want to run. So I don't know what to tell people. <laughs> you know, but that's, that's literally the only thing that I have to contribute to this debate. Otherwise, people can sit in their anger, be angry. You know, Tim, Tim this, we went through this with, what's his face? I'm um, sorry, uh, with, with um, a wolf pack. Tim Black. Tim Black. You know, people occasionally decide to make me a target, and that is what it is, and that's their choice. You know, I wish him all the best, but like sometimes people just have to work through it. I can't be drawn into every time because because like sometimes it's also like people feed off of it. Like I don't want to add fire to it. If I think it's the kind of thing that is going to be like because someone has a bigger platform than me. And it's going to, it's going to burn. The fire is going to burn with or without my participation. Maybe then I feel like I have to hop in and try to quench it. But like, otherwise my participation can often just end up feeding something. And, you know, so like, I'm happy for them to be angry at me. Like, I hope they work through it. I don't think there's a really any real reason to. I've enjoyed having solidarity with them in the past. I hope everybody figures out their feelings. So the, they're framing it as Marianne Williamson is going to defraud the working poor of a hundred million dollars. They're basically saying like that, like okay, they, they got don't the, give money to her. Then, like I don't know what to tell you. I never told anybody to give money to her. Right? Like, Nobody don't do it. <laughs> I don't know what to tell people. Like, don't do it then. If you don't want to give money to her, then don't do it. If you think there's some net benefit in her running, even if you are like you're clear-eyed about the risks and all that, because we just went through Bernie, but you think. Ultimately, you want to have someone on that stage who at very minimum, like, believes in Medicare for all or reparations or whatever your issue is, then kick her five bucks, whatever you want to do. It's a free country, sort of. Yeah. I mean, there's there's people who would say it's a net negative, and I wish we could just agree agree to disagree with those people. Yeah, like, then don't, then ignore her. God bless. Ignore her. So at the risk of getting a little messy, me and a couple people hopped on Savvy's call on Thursday after your call in. And mm. she went until 1 a.m. my time, and I'm in San Francisco. So mm. she's in the East Coast, right? And uh, she's was, in Boston, yeah. Boston, yeah. And she was kind of like talking, you know, she was venting her frustrations with how the interview had gone. Like, the, like we had her, and then we mm-hmm. let her off the hook. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, like, there's been a, a pattern of sexism within RBN. And like, mm-hmm. she, 
she disavowed the attacks on you. She's like, I don't see what's appropriate about that. Like, it's not even mm-hmm. reacting to a video. It's reacting to the announcement of a video that's coming in a week. Mm-hmm. And so she's kind of like tentative, but she hasn't published that Colin. So mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Well, sometimes, um, especially if she wrapped it late, it can take a really long time to like process. And so like if you if it's late and you're just going to go to sleep, like this happened to me two weeks, two Collins ago where we ended late. I didn't stay up and wait for it to finish processing. And then I just forgot about it until the next week when someone was like, you never posted it. And so then I posted it. So the episode before was episode 74. And then she posted the subsequent one on Lula as episode 75, indicating that the one in between. Oh, I didn't. see. So. Yeah. Well, look, I, I understand that. Yeah, I can understand wanting an event, not necessarily wanting a record to live in posterity because people pick over everything. And, you know, she I don't, I'm sure she doesn't want to start beef within her own organization. But like, I, I, I think that I, I think Sabi is great. I've really enjoyed talking to her on the Hill and on and elsewhere. And I think that she asked a lot of really great questions. I thought Nick also asked a lot of great questions of Marianne and that it was a useful, productive interview until it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, I, I, I'm rooting for them. I, I hope they figure this shit out because when, the, when they're on their game, they're one of the best. I, it, I completely agree. I completely agree. I don't know. I just kind of wish they would, um, like, like committing yourself to four to five hours of streaming live every day is like, like you said, there's a trade-off and at a certain point you're putting this much effort into this. You can't put that much effort into that. Like, I feel like if they balance the mutual aid stuff with some of their hit pieces. It would probably go down a little better. Also, does it have to be a hit? Like, well, it started with it's Ryan just... Grimm and then it, then, it, then it went to Jordan Cheriton and then I think it hopped onto you next and it was just kind of snowballing. <clears throat> yeah. And then the whole blow up is like, well, we gain subs. So it's a net positive. It's kind of like, I feel like alienating people is a bad long-term strategy, but what do I know? Yeah. There's not going to be anybody left at a certain point. Like I, look, I, I, I was happy to do what I could also to like help bring attention and views and stuff to the channel. And you put them on, I, you put I, them right. I know how hard it is. Like, I also feel like, sorry, identity possible. Well, I also feel like there's not always a lot of people who give the same respect and, you know, credibility to black people in the bread tube space, you know, what are, what are Vouch's credentials? None, but like exactly. people will like accept the things that Vouch says is authoritative because he's got a professor's voice and it's like a white guy and a way that they won't like the black people over at RB. And so like, I feel very strongly, I felt very strongly about wanting to help in any way I could. I'm very grateful to like Michael Brooks for putting me on when a lot of people in the space would not have. And I anticipated continuing to do that and having other members of the crew on right. Like I, I was looking forward to doing all of that, but I guess now I'm a PMC piece of shit who is, a you know, hates them. And, and, you know, they're like, you're friends with Marianne. I was like, I thought I was friends with you too. <laughs> I thought I was friends with you too. I wanted to be helpful to you, but okay, I guess that's they're not on their what whole you want. And that's fine. Just kind of, well, you can't be friends with the enemy. It's like well, friends with literally anyone. But you. <laughs> like, yeah. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Hopefully it'll all get resolved. Yeah, I'm hoping so. Because, I mean, it's just, it's them and Worker Strike Back is such a natural sync. Like, you know, they just sync so well. It's just, it's a no-brainer. And I really hope that they can, you know, get together and work on that shit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, well, thanks for calling in, Lysol. It's a pleasure as always. 
Yeah, of course. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Now let me go back and find Samurai. How you doing, Samurai? You ready for are you ready for us? Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sorry I've been like spamming your chat. I just didn't know how often you check in. I wanted to make sure you saw. I got um, you, Sammy. I got you. I appreciate you. it. Um, yeah. Uh, so I actually, and I apologize. I was actually on a DSA call um, and I was, I was on the mic right when you called me, um, which is why I couldn't speak just then. But <laughs> That's I, legitimate. I bring, it up, I bring it up because, yeah, the timing, like, anyway, um, I bring it up because uh, I did want to sort of share something. And I think I have some thoughts and I would love to get your feedback slash um, thoughts on, on what I want to share. Uh, that is like tangential to force the vote. But I think force the vote, like I think was mentioned earlier, uh, is just a, this is a strategy for politicians to exercise and leverage their power, which, you know, is a no brainer. Like that's the whole point. Um, otherwise, what is the point? So uh, in DSA, I know you followed the um, sort of what went down with Jamal Bowman. And since then, uh, or sorry, before then we had forced the vote, then we had Bowman, then we had uh, there have been multiple incidents, like they funded cops, um, obviously mm-hmm. the Iron Dome stuff, um, mm-hmm. more recently military funding, the rail strike. Like there's been so much mm-hmm. that so, so-called so socialist politicians have done and the socialists, the DSA, uh, we have done nothing uh, in response to discipline them, to do anything differently, to actually provide some strategy. And um, that just kind of goes against socialism. Like that's not socialism. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm wondering like, um, well, actually I wanted to share one thing and then I have a question, but uh, so this is, I I don't have a source on this. So I'd love for you, if you could try to figure out if there is a source on this or get confirmation of this. But um, uh, you know, I was involved with the Bowman stuff. I was told at a certain point in time that um, two politicians on the left reached out to leaders of the DSA, the national political committee, Um, And these were endorsed politicians in Congress, um, which narrows it down to just a handful. But two of these folks reached out to NPC members and basically said that, um, you know, if you expel Jamal Bowman, one of them said, I'm going to call the DSA a racist organization and sort of denounce you guys. Um, And the other one said that they were just going to leave the organization if they expelled Bowman. So um, (laughs) I bring this up because... A, I would love for you to try to see if you could find a source on that, because even the person that told me um, who was uh, very close to the matter um, didn't have like, you know, text message proof or voice recording or whatever it is. So there might be people in your circles that would know. Um, um, But even if it's not true, like it is very clear that, um, you know, these so-called leftist organizations are more um, they're, they're willing to discipline their own membership way, way, way before they're willing to do anything about their elected officials, um, let alone have a strategy that they ask their, you know, electeds to actually follow through on. So I'm just wondering, like, I've been struggling with this question, um, and I know there's a national convention coming up with NDSA, but, like, do you think, from all you've seen and the people you've talked to, both in the organization and outside of it, do you think DSA, like, is salvageable as a body? And, um, you know, where do you think... If, if if not, where do you think people should go? And if it is, you know, what do you think, um, what do you think are like important steps for the organization to do like in reform itself? Well, I want to ask you that question. I mean, you're obviously way more involved than I ever was. I mean, like I, I don't know anything about 
those rumors big if true. I mean, it doesn't. It certainly sounds plausible. I'm not going to lie. Um, but you know, if I were in that position, you know, if I were in any kind of, you know, decision making capacity at DSA, my my feeling would be let them do it. Like, and and also expose the threat. Say we were told get in front of it, and sit down with Politico, whatever messy magazine loves to write about these kind of inner left fights. And say so we were told that if we booted Jamal Bobin out of the organization on principle, that we were going to be accused of acting out of racism. It is our position that our priority is the racist behavior of the Israeli government toward the occupied Palestine, <laughs> you know, and just get ahead of it um, and let the chips roll they may. Because at the end of the day, if that's if that's what the DSA is going to be covering for that kind of behavior and bending the knee to elected officials instead of the other way around, then what's the point of it? You know, if it's a smaller, like this is what Socialist Alternative says, it's like it's better to be a smaller organization that has more specific principles and commitments um, that you can be more powerful and have more of an effect that way than just being a big membership organization to people who are very loosely affiliated and basically just pay dues every month without having any kind of ideological rubric that organizes them. You know, you, you have to like apply, you have to like try out, it's not the best word, but like try out for a social alternative, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And actually it's really interesting because, um, uh, there is a chapter right now, um, in Rhode Island that is of DSA mm-hmm. that is, um, very nearly going to, uh, start a third party line um, in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's deciding right now whether or not it kicks out one of its elected um, state representatives who voted for the Democratic Party leadership in, in the state house. So I think there are these questions happening. Um, and uh, I think, w- th- th- and this is, I think, the problem with so many of, uh, of these sort of organizations on the left. Like we have, um, we don't have, we, we don't have like actual true leadership like the leadership during all these moments they've been either absent or have been saying the most kind of horrific awful things um and people have raised questions because people in the chat were saying like dsa is cointelpro a lot of people have i've raised my own questions that you know a 16 member leadership body the dsa has a 16 member leadership body where only 19 people ran in the last election Mm-hmm. Um, is extremely vulnerable to infiltration by not just like the state apparatus, but by like Democratic Party operatives as well. Um, and people in DSA have actually pointed this out. Um, so it, and it's not unique to us. Like there's a lot of organizations that run like nonprofits that should be serving the needs of the people. Um, so I think that's something that I, I, I've been wrestling with. And also somebody earlier in the chat um, was calling for Jeffrey Sachs to to run for president. I just want to remind people that he was um, the architect of shock therapy mm-hmm. after the fall of the Soviet Union and a lot of like post-Soviet states. Um, so people have rightfully called him a neoliberal. And just because he's sounding the right tune on Ukraine right now, I, I think we should we should analyze these things critically. Um, but yeah, Brie, like if you, um, you know, if you have any eyes and ears and can, you know, try to get to the bottom of, you know, this so-called leadership in DSA, um, because I was a staffer on the Bernie campaign, actually. Mm. And after Bernie, um, I joined the DSA and I was like this, I, I'm going to make this um, 
a way for me to do Palestine organizing because I didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I could do that on the Bernie campaign, not effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause Bernie is no, you know, mm-hmm. he's no anti-Zionist. Um, and so I was like, well, let me go into the DSA and try to, you know, push Palestine um, in a place that could have a lot of impact. Um, and unfortunately I think there's so many people like in your ecosphere um, in media circles who will so quickly write off Palestinians um, and even people that I like, like I've, really liked crystal ball but you know her like quickness to supporting marianne williamson um and seeming and she can prove us wrong but seeming like okayness with her stances on palestine are i think really deplorable like you know marianne has said in some some not great things on 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 palestine like some really like just in 2021 she was like basically saying we shouldn't use the word apartheid and mm-hmm. she's changed her tune a little, but like, mm-hmm. you know, like we have to be critical of, of these, of these politicians, just as we should be critical of our orgs. But I really hope like you can continue providing clarity to people on the left um, and focus on like the issues um, that we care about and actually having a strategy to achieve them uh, and, and staying out of these sort of like personality battles. Um, because I think people were very disingenuous when they said forced to vote was about Jimmy Dore. And that's mm-hmm. why you shouldn't do it. I rolled my eyes. Like there was like people like there was a guy, Sean Estelle, like that guy is awful. Fuck, fuck Sean Estelle. And the reason why is because he was on the National Political Committee of the DSA. And when a bunch of members of the DSA brought forced to vote to him and were like, hey, we need like national support for this. He basically was like, well, that's Jimmy Dore. So we can't do that because Jimmy Dore is stupid. Like, you know, whatever. Yes. Um, this was on a private call. I mean, I, I was on that call, so I, I will p- gladly be the source. But, you know, like like there's people like that who in my heart of hearts, believe, I believe, are liberals who are sort of, quote, unquote, leading the movement. Um, and the clarity you provide around both issues and strategy is, I think, invaluable because it forces people like myself to wake up to, I think, the harsh realities and that realizing that if, you know, if we continue down this path with these organizations and don't either, you know, radically revolutionize them or start our own entirely, then we are just going to have, you know, Simran, let me cycle. Ask you this. why do you think that so few people run for those 16 leadership spots? That's a great question. I think they're very, it's very intimidating that the fact that there are so few positions, it's a hell of a lot of work on, on paper, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the biggest reason is because in DSA, there are factions, literally, like they have names. Um, um, and so each of these factions, these sort of ideological caucuses, will run their own slates of candidates, will organize, you know, delegates to vote for those candidates. I don't think I'm, I'm personally not in a caucus and I don't particularly like any of them, uh, really. Um, but uh, they basically sort of monopolize huge groups of, of delegates to vote for specific people, which makes it really hard, you know, for anybody who's not playing that game to really win. Um, and so that also means that caucuses don't have an incentive to run, you know, a whole lot of people. They just need to run enough people so that, you know, they can get those, you know, handful of seats that they want to get. Um, and that makes for a really like splintered leadership with no core guidance um, from, I would consider my side of the table. And then on the other side of the table, they sort of, what I would refer to as the NPC, like uh, shit libs, like they are, they have outsized control. And this is the sort of Green New Deal caucus, the socialist majority caucus, like they have outsized control over the body because they know exactly what they're doing. And they're always going to be sort of bootlickers to power for lack of a better word um what's the deal with um miris font is that her name the 
the what's the main? Club? I'm sorry. Who, who are you referring to? Mara. What's the what's the CEO? I don't oh, know, Maria Smart. Maria, yeah. Oh yeah. I don't know. I've I've never actually talked to her or met her. Um, she's technically a member of the NPC. I think. Um, I don't know if she has voting powers, but yeah, I mean, people, okay. The people that I I don't personally agree with in DSA in leadership, they try to make the claim that when they hire people for positions for staff positions, because she's the sort of national director, that those are, those are not supposed to be political positions. And this is, again, this is like a sort of, you know, Western NGO nonprofit sort of brain rot that they are sort of these like NPCs, literally (laughs) not playable characters who just run the organization but obviously, like Maria Spart and everyone else that's sort of staff obviously have their politics and they're, they're obviously going to affect things in the organization along those lines. So most recently, they tried to hire a national electoral um, field director or something or the other. Um, but it was marred in controversy because the majority or like the split half of the NPC was basically like, hey, we're not going to go through this whole um, vetting process and interviews. We're just going to like tell you guys that this is the guy we want and we're going to put it up to a vote. Um which super undemocratic and also like a really bad way to go about hiring people, but it's because they didn't really care. They just wanted their person in the position. So like, there's a lot of this like really shitty, like, you know, nonprofit industrial complex behavior. Um, And it's no, it's no, it's no coincidence that a lot of these people on the NPC are themselves or have been at some point in time, democratic party consultants. They've worked on campaigns. I mean, I've worked on a campaign, but like, I'm willing to say that and I'm like very upfront with my politics. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are not. Um, and do you think that any of those people would be, whatever come on the podcast? Cause I mean, this was what was part of what was so frustrating around force the vote is even though Ryan, he since apologized, I'm not holding a grudge, Ryan, this is not me trying to make a dig, but at the time, you know, smeared me as having never, and in, in the force of a movement as having never reached out to some of these orgs and in you DSA, I very much tried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it just feels like impossible. Like so much of this animosity didn't need to have happened if someone from the org just sat down and talked through their rationale, now, my, my belief, my, you know, we've, you've suggested this as well, is that there was not like a real good faith engagement in the merits of the strategy. However, 100%. like that could have either become clear and they could have adjusted once they got pushback or, you know, they could have offered some rationale that maybe I would have accepted Again, unlikely in hindsight, but could have been at the time. But like it, everything just was like a black box and it festered. And then you had people like Ryan saying, well, you didn't even reach out. Like you didn't even. And then they, they didn't take a vote. They said that they couldn't vote, that there was no time to take a membership vote. The Medicare for All caucus did take a vote, but it was like only 20 people or tw- 30 people or something like that. Yes. The vote came back in favor of force the vote. But again, <laughs> it was such an unrepresentatively small. I was one of those 20 or 30. <laughs> yeah if i, if I recall like correctly it was like it was like 22 out of 30 or something like that or yeah tw- 20 out of 28 something like that yeah um, basically it was like the healthcare workers caucus within the larger medicare for all working group because because the the larger working group so i i believe uh and never i never got confirmation of this but you know like in line with what the npc wanted wouldn't take it up so then the healthcare workers caucus many of whom were like nurses physicians mm-hmm. techs were just like well this is a good strategy let's vote on it and it passed mm-hmm. um but we didn't really have the power to like action you know make it actionable like we had specific chapters where like 
the heads of the Medicare for all working group were like super down and like organized people like the DC, the Metro DC chapter, Mm -hmm. the head of their Medicare for all working group was like super down with like pushing this and was like trying to get more people on board. Like there was a real concerted effort just as you, you pushed a real concerted effort. Um, but yeah, I mean, your question was like, do they care if you reached out to them? Like, I mean, I'm not surprised they never responded to you. There is, there is actually, I forgot to mention this. There's a steering committee within the national political committee. And this steering committee is really the one that has most of the power. And for most of the last two years, um, and during the Bowman stuff and the force to vote stuff, it was controlled by why, what the, the factions I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the socialist majority and the green new deal caucus. It's funny that they're called the green new deal. Caucus. They have really not radical politics, but anyway, those um that group controlled the steering committee as well as a majority on the whole body so they would be the ones that would sort of green light you know any sort of press exposure so i'm not surprised at all that they didn't go you know talk to you or anybody because like um why would they like their strategies were not i mean i i i I mostly like i was in i was still a dues paying member at that time and i remember going in the slack channel and deciding to become more active because I wanted to get a sense of who I should be talking to. And when I logged in, you can see like the last few messages, like the messages right when you moved log in. And it was people making fun of me over force the vote. <laughs> I, like, look, there, there are plenty of people in DSA who, and I, and I grew up like a privileged life. You know, I didn't have to worry about health insurance, but there are plenty of people who like me grew a privileged life. I would say the majority of people in the DSA who do not have any sort of like class consciousness or, or sort of um, class traitor in them. Um, and, and those people, frankly, they run the org. So I that's a very personal way of putting things. And like people are like, oh, well, you don't know. And well, like, I, I, don't, you know I, don't, but, I don't bring it up to like complain just to say like I, I, I basically gave up on the idea of trying to talk to the DSA at that point. I did clearly follow up with National Nurses United and they mm-hmm. fully blew me off like – which is interesting because nurses are historically way more radical than doctors, but some not, but it, I mean, but it wasn't what, I mean, I've told this story before, but we, I, we had reached out to Bonnie Castillo because we were just going to do a COVID episode. It was like Thanksgiving. Everyone was talking about how you shouldn't go home pre-vaccine, all of that. And we were going to do just like a healthcare COVID safety episode. And then force the vote came up between the time we had reached out and the episode, and I was like, oh, by the way, can you also talk about force the vote? At that point, for whatever reason, they were like, oh, I'm busy. Things have gotten crazy because of the healthcare crisis. Okay. I said, can we reschedule? There was like radio silence. I sent several follow-up emails over the course of the next like month and a half, six weeks or so. It's now January. <laughs> the force the vote moment comes and goes. I hear... Um, eventually I get an email back after like three follow-up emails. You know me, I'm disorganized as hell. I never send these follow-ups, but I was determined. I sent three follow-ups emails and then I got an email saying that because COVID was so crazy that nurses were overburdened and they didn't have anybody to send on the show. I mean, okay. And then like a week later, I heard an NNU representative talking to Ryan Graham on one of the Intercept podcasts. So I forwarded that podcasted them saying, Oh, it looks like somebody's time freed up. <laughs> Do you have time to come on bad faith? You just did this intercept podcast. And the reply was, Oh, that person isn't a nurse. They are from our political organizing wing or whatever. So that's why they were able to go on Ryan's show. And I was like, okay, I didn't need you to literally send me a nurse. 
I wasn't looking for healthcare. I needed to talk to someone about in a new strategy, whether or not that person is a qualified nurse is not my issue right now. I needed, I needed someone who could talk to me about the organizational decisions, you know? Um, like, like so the, the people in DSA that you would have wanted to interact with, I don't think they would have interacted with you in any way, shape or form. And then the people who like, there were a couple people in national leadership who were sort of tacitly on board with force the vote, but like they're, in like in like professional managerial class type orgs like DSA, there is such a, a sort of like vacuum of strategy or like any semblance of strategy. Like they don't ask anything of their politicians. And most people think that that's A-OK. And obviously, if, you know, if, if these things we're talking about, these issues are truly emergencies and like we're, we shouldn't squander any you know, opportunity to leverage power. And, and so, but I think that's like a larger symptom of the left. Like, I, like it, it's, you know, it feels so alienating to go to so many, not just DSA meetings, but any kind of organizational meeting on the sort of quote unquote left. And like, I've never really felt surrounded by working class people, except that maybe like one um, PSL meeting, like, like most of these organizations just do not pull people directly from the working class and they know it but it's not a priority. And so you have situations like this where like the shittiest politics rise to the top, the people who have the most time who are political consultants, et cetera. Um, I mean, for God's sakes, like I worked with, you know, I, you know, there, there was somebody who um, was, 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 was high up in one of these DSA caucuses who uh, literally had worked for, um, for APAC a couple years prior and had not disclosed that, but what? was like running for like running on a national slate. Um, and people found that out. And then, of course, they dropped out because, you know, we're not going to get votes at that point. But like there are people that there are stories like that um, and they seem endless. But I think this is what happens when you have an organization that's not centered around like the urgency of what working class people like need. Um, and I think Force the Vote was a great way to 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 expose that. And I think it got further exposed with Bowman. Every single one of these times that they've had these sort of critical moments, DSA membership has dropped precipitously. The biggest one was after Force to Vote was, was the Bowman. We, they dropped like 8,000 members, I think, in one day, some crazy number. Mm -hmm. And then the railroad strike, and that really hit home. I, I don't know the number, but I think it was more than that. Um, it was even more if, than Bowman. If you have numbers on that stuff, that I can think of, like, that's an article that should be written. There are numbers. I can get them. I don't have them off the top of my head. It's in the thousands. Like it went from a over a hundred thousand member org. I think now we're in the seventies. The last like, I, I want to see the pre two thousand eighteen numbers, right? Because there was that huge AOC boom. I want to, or like, I want to see the pre twenty sixteen numbers. Then I want to see the twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen shift with the squad, you know, squad evolution in twenty eighteen. And then I want to, I want to be able to like chart this because that's a, that's a very interesting story that somebody should tell. Yeah. And I, and I personally see, I mean, I, I can get that stuff. I don't really know how I'd get it to you, but um, like the, some people are saying in the chat, like DSA are ops, DSA is this, DSA is that. I, I think by and large, like the organization as a whole, that would ring true <laughs> at this point. Mm -hmm. um, I will say like there are chapters who have opposed all of these things, like whose membership was on board with Force the Vote, who wanted to, exp I mean, there were 53 chapters or something that wanted to expel Jamal Bowman. It wasn't an unserious number. Mm. Like there have been chapters throughout that have been principled and consistent about strategy, discipline, et cetera. And I think either those chapters are going to 
fix the organization if it can be fixed, or those people are going to leave the organization, form something else or join another org. But there, there is these fissures are going too wide for there not to be some sort of like dramatic um, resolution. And, and some people are talking about there being like a, like in a lot of like um, um, Latin American parties, like there, there might be like a parliament instead of a, a, a um, a, a small leadership body or a standing convention with delegates elected periodically. Like these thoughts are out there um, because I, I, I agree. I mean, at this point, if DSA continues to make these quote unquote mistakes over and over and over again, screwing over working class people and unions, everyone, Palestinians, if we're going to keep doing that, like at some point you got to stop yourself and ask like, well, is this organization like run by the forces we're fighting against or in some way beholden to them? And, Personally, I think the answer is yes, um, but I'm still trying to figure that out. Jamal Bowman did a lot of stuff, um, CMAC Bowman. Um, he voted for the Iron Dome missile system. He also went on a trip to Israel and like met with all these war criminals, shook their hands, took smiley photo ops. He also did a trip um, throughout, I want to say the West Bank, um, with uh, uh, a liberal, Zion, quote unquote, liberal Zionist mm -hmm. organization. Uh, so he did a lot. And um, yeah, I mean, he, he, he wasn't unendorsed. The most that they would do is say, well, we won't endorse him again unless he makes like significant progress or I don't know the stupid wording they used. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing concrete there. It wasn't actual discipline. Um, so yeah, sorry for talking so much, Brianna, but like, I would love to help with this. I think DSA no, that's, spoiling. that's been really interesting. You can um, email me at the bad faith Gmail, which is probably badfaith at gmail.com i think it's on it's on the it's on the patreon and on the youtube page listed somewhere I okay i'm gonna I'll, get my I'll hat together i'm gonna get my hat together someone's at the world socialist website has posted some of these numbers as well so i'll take a look at that as well but i appreciate you calling in this has been really informative samurai yeah of course and you were right my name is sammy <laughs> Oh, so many really? people, the thing is like so many people don't want to talk about this stuff especially the palestine stuff because it is like so easy to be blacklisted and yeah. put on, like there's canary mission there's other sites um and that's really been the thing holding a lot of people back from talking to media on the other side of the issue um but yeah those those, those clowns running the dsa they're never going to want to talk to you brianna because they know you're going to ask the right question and that's because I meet people in DSA all the time who are like cool and who get it and who agree and it's just very fresh. I, I want to always be very careful with my criticisms because it's not about like the membership as a whole. Like I'm always you know bumping into people at you know the Assange rally. Like the, the people all a lot of people flocked to the DSA because it felt like in the wake of 2016 this is where like-minded people needed to go and that we were going to do something. And it's not like their fault that leadership is not doing the thing, but it's like, sometimes I think that the accusations of entryism that Shama got or whatever, like that would have been the best thing to happen to the organization to just <laughs> let, let the, let, let the socialist alternative folks take over actually. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, I think they still should <laughs> like, frankly, um, cause there's, there's, an, there's already sort of infrastructure of chapters all around the country. So like, uh, those, the, it's not about like them infiltrating just anyone with solid like analysis and strategy like welcome i mean there's criticisms yeah. of, Sh of shama that i think have some merit like i don't think she supports bds for example but like overall really she like, i don't think so i need to double check on that or maybe it's a social alternative that doesn't either way i'm not like she anyway the, po the point is like like um 
you know, I, I take Sean Sawan over like all these clowns in Congress any day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, thanks again. Thanks again, Samurai. It's been great. Keep the faith. Uh, Eric, how are you doing? I am doing good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. What's in your mind tonight? So one of the things that are on my mind is after listening to your com- the second part of your conversation with Avash, I was very intrigued in his analysis of historical events. For example, when he brought up the fact about how during the 2016 primary with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and how he said that, I'm paraphrasing here, that people were more willing to vote for Bernie Sanders because of some like not understanding quote unquote the true threat of Trump. And <clears throat> my issue with that is I would review that more as a fact that during that time people were looking for an outsider. And I think that was one of the reasons why Trump won did so well in the Republican primary and why Bernie had such a um unexpected run in that particular primary outside of the DNC's tampering that we all know they did Mm -hmm. particularly and I bring that up because of the Michigan win that no one expected him to win and when he pulled that off at the last minute so his analysis of the fact that he viewed that as you know people being more willing to take a chance on you know Bernie Sanders rather than in that moment in the Democratic Party in the primary, there were people wanting something a little bit more radical. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the I, I found some of the arguments about what motivated people at various points to be rather inconsistent. It's like he acknowledged that Biden won because of kind of never Trumpism and like a fear of Trump and not any real enthusiasm around Biden and that the other candidates consolidated and all of that stuff, but then wants to make other kinds of claims about how people don't really even like aggressive energy. And, you know, it's on one hand, it's like Bernie had the system rigged against him, but also there's no point in fighting for all these things because Bernie's loss proves that no one really liked him in the first place. And it's like, well, what about all the stuff that you just said was rigged against him? You know, it, it, Look, there's there's a lot of like data points that people use, and I'm sure I've done this as well. Kind of like conveniently, you know, picking and choosing. But at the end of the day, like I I don't understand why you would make you would you would you would ignore the evidence that these issues are still popular. Issue polling has been consistent through all of this. When people asked why they voted for Joe Biden, it wasn't because they wanted more moderate conservative policies. It was because they wanted to beat Trump. Like, I, I don't know how you look at that whole picture and say, well, the public isn't going to be with us because the public actually doesn't like these progressive programs and we shouldn't try anything and there's no appetite for this. And we just have to, like, I guess, convince more people. And that's what the left's project should be right now to the extent that we have one. I agree. I, I just it wasn't. It wasn't coming together for me. It just it felt like a, a post hoc justification to not do anything. And that was one of the things that I found. I mean, I did find it a at least somewhat satisfying that you did get him to admit on some level that this more pacifist 
strategy of voting for the Democratic Party because the Republican Party is just that bad, and which is what his strategy is, is that mm-hmm. the Republican Party is just that bad that we cannot do anything that may hurt in the uh, the more, you know, less, quote-unquote, evil part uh, uh, option because if it would then give rise to the Republican side that he at least admitted to the risk of that because that's something that I have yet to hear anyone of that strategy at least somewhat admit to that there is a risk in that Mm -hmm. but even with that I it's like even though he admitted that I still don't think he ever really sat and dealt with that because it's very interesting when you had the previous call on him talking about the inside of the DSA. And I look at what we're doing now and how quickly, you know, maybe this was always the case, but at least, you know, just the eye test, how quickly, um, quote unquote, the squad has seemed to be pacified. Like AOC came into office and first thing she does holds a a, a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office, pisses her off. Mm -hmm. And very quickly after that, she, all of a sudden, the people who were running her, you know, who was running her campaign, the more radical ones in that, they were let go. And Mm -hmm. then more, you know, quote-unquote pacifists were put into place. You see the talks of um, Rashida Tlaib, who... Um, seem, I mean, she still goes hard when it comes to Palestine, mm-hmm. but you see, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a pacifist now in her. She's not as vocal as I think she has been. So one of my things, again, with the risk, with what the strategy that Bosch and other people uh, tout about this, you know, voting for the lesser to evil, what comes with that, and I see that in the DSA organiz- organizations, the longer you do that, those people who first started off as quote unquote more radical, they also start to pacify themselves because once you, you know, compromise certain position, it becomes easier mm-hmm. to compromise the next. It becomes easier to compromise again. Cause it's like, okay, you know, I gave up that. So why not do a little bit more? And you can always talk yourself into thinking something is you know, for the better. I am doing this for the greater good. There's a narcissist. That's like one of my favorite. Uh, I'm not sure. You, you've, I'm pretty sure you've seen this. The um, Devil's Advocate. Yes. Yes, and uh, one. Is that more Tom Cruise in it? Uh, no, that's the one with Keanu Reeves and um, Al Pacino. Where Al Pacino's the devil, Keanu Reeves is like a lawyer. <sighs> so wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's okay. There's. Which one is based off of, is it Michael Crichton or Tom Clancy novel? Um, You're talking about, no, well, the. I read one of them and I feel like that's the one with with maybe Tom Tom Cruise, Cruise? but maybe I'm lying. Are you talking about A Few Good Men? No, no, no. It's, it's a lawyer movie. Young, young lawyer graduates from law school, goes to work at some firm. I think it's in the South. And he's like, they give him like a house. He's got a young wife. Like they, they really think they're on the come up, but then things go very, very dark. I forget exactly what the, I feel like it's the devil's advocate. Wasn't the devil's advocate? I think maybe I read it and didn't see it, but I thought the movie had 
Tom Cruise in it. Don't ignore me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I get the gist. But one of the things that, you know, um, that the that, firm, yes, the firm. Sorry, okay. my bad. <laughs> one of the things that come up that Al Pacino says, he's actually the devil. Like he brings up, he says, vanity is truly my favorite sin. Mm. And he says it in the beginning, like close to the beginning. He says it at the end when um, you think that Keanu Reeves character is doing the right thing. But then he, at the right thing, the last line of thing is that he comes back and says, Vanity is truly my favorite sin. And one of the reasons he says that is because even when you may, you can, conf- you can think that you can convince yourself that you are really doing something for the greater good, but in reality, all you're really doing is for your own narcissistic feeling. And I feel like mm. when you start, you know, uh, what I've seen what's happening with the squad and these progressive elected officials, the long, the fact that one of the reasons why I'm more adamant about them being more, um, uh, you know, antagonistic towards the system is because when you start, you know, slowly caving in and doing that type of stuff, you get into that vanity. You start to, you can start feeding that, making yourself think you're doing something bigger than you're actually doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a danger that I don't think they, that some people on the left are realizing what's happening. And my last point is I was listening to uh, Jordan, a uh, stream that Jordan Charlton was doing, and he had this woman on, and I think she made a very good point. She said, we got to stop having heroes. Mm. And particularly political heroes. There's no such thing as political heroes. And um, one of the things that I, I agree with that point is because when you put them on this hero type pedestal, when they fail you, that can have such a greater effect on your willingness to keep going. When you just look at them as, no, you are just a means. To me, if you run as a politician, you are a tool. And you're only as good to me as you are useful. Mm-hmm. And people get mad at me because they, they uh, like, you know, I'm a black guy, so I come from a black family. When I talk about Obama, I'm like, if Obama was to walk past me, I would not be hype. I would not be excited. He was a mm-hmm. political servant. I don't care he was the president. His job was to serve us, and he did a bad job at that. Mm-hmm. He failed. And I try to get people to stop thinking, uh, yes, he's the first black president. whoop de doo Did you watch this new um... – Netflix movie everyone's talking about with Jonah Hill and Lauren London and Eddie Murphy and Julia Louise Dreyfus. Yes, I did watch it. You people. Yes. Um, I could talk about that for a long time, which I'm not going to do. But did you notice like the opening little comedic bit about Obama? No, I did not. I must have missed that. It was like it's like the initial the first words in the movie. I was like, oh, Lord, it it rebounded somewhat from there. But um, it's Jonah Hill and his podcast co-host and they're like riffing about how Obama is like cool and the goat and oh know, yeah yeah yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Obama could do you know he seems I like he, did, he would do gay stuff on cocaine blah 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 that whole yeah. I think I tuned it out and like, <laughs> I can't yeah understandable I was like this is so out of touch like who is still writing Obama Hagiographies like this into movies, like what is it, 2012? Yeah, like, Kenya Barris, because that's that's his, right. His, his, yeah, mo. That's Kevin right. Kenya Barris mo. It was so weird. It felt like such a weird time warp. Like who even is thinking about this guy like that? Uh, but also, it's a Netflix show, and I thought, oh, he has this deal with Netflix, so maybe they're just trying to boost their own like <laughs> product. 
<laughs> yeah, he Kenya Barris knows his art audience. He's trying to get a certain type of audience. I mean, I thought it was okay. I have some issues with this. Yeah, this I had movie. some issues. I laughed out loud a lot during the first like thirty minutes. And Julia <laughs> Louise Dreyfus can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I did like her in the movie, but um, that was just one of my main takeaways of the overall conversation. Is that I found that Vosh's even when you agreed and then he would disagree, there was just a level of like, do you hear that you're kind of contradicting yourself? Mm -hmm. And that at the same time, you offer no, your, your strategy. And I did the same time, like you said, there's this, there's doomerism within your strategy. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that it was, I saw you really trying to get him to try to grasp that fact. And he just would not. Yeah, I mean, we came close. I mean, he kind of, he would kind of acknowledge it. But again, I just don't know that it like mattered. If, if you if you don't see yourself as part of a, like a, a forward moving political project, then I guess it maybe just doesn't even matter to you. You know, mm -hmm. maybe you just don't think about it in those terms. You mm -hmm. know, like, so what if I held up force of vote? Like it wasn't going anywhere anyway, I think is where, where people have put it in their minds. And they're mm -hmm. not, like for me, I see it as like a through line, you know, I've explained before and it started to creep in. And when I would hear, I would ask people questions in these interviews and they would just hit me with organizing. And I was like, okay, but like practically speaking, because again, even starting back in 2020, it was like, it was like trying to ask questions about where the Bernie movement was going to go next and you know, what lessons we should learn. And it was all of this, like, completely detached stuff that basically indicated to me that no one had really thought about it that hard, mm -hmm. which continues to be scary to me because I'm not pretending that I, you know, I haven't devoted nearly enough time to like, like if my job were to actually be, you know, I don't know, like a movement leader, then I don't, I don't know. I would expect to have, I don't know, just put more thought. It just feels like who is, who is putting thought, who is putting hours of like full-time job level energy into figuring some stuff out? Yeah. Who, who's the comms strategist? Who's the actual organizing strategist who can figure out like how to tap into various groups around the country and, and what are the goals? What are we trying to put bodies toward exactly? What strategically are the things that we need to have a greater impact? Is it ranked choice voting? Is that the thing? Is it is it is it local politics the way Savvy has been focusing on, which feels really productive? Is it some combination? You know, how much mutual aid has to go with some of these other kind of political projects to get people in various communities to feel the buy-in to want to to translate the time you're spending with the community into actually voting? You know, not just every popping up every four years or every two years. Like who who is doing like longitudinal studies on like? past electoral practices and figuring out like pay, pay, putting money toward actually getting polls to see what kind of messaging works best. Like there's so much to be done. I, like it makes my head spin. And like the last things I'm going to say, like one of the things that really unnerved me when I, cause I watch all these channels for the most part. Cause I know I just like to be informed. I like to understand how other people are thinking. And one of the things that annoy me, um, I know some people are probably going to drag me for this. I think TYT does this the best out of all those like channels, like whether it be TYT or, you know, um, 
majority part is that when I watch the majority part, and even they don't criticize and Vosh don't criticize to me uh, the squad in the elected progressives official when they mess up within their own realm of strategy. Like, I don't like it when they don't talk about the fact or they don't criticize them when they be like, when, when like Jamal Bowman votes for the Iron Dome. Mm-hmm. When, you know, they don't, when there are, ele- the second time Nina turned around and they were not there day one on the ground. Like, this is supposed to be your bro. I like to use, you know, gender-specific terms and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be your bro right there. This is supposed to be the person you're supposedly supposed to have their back. And that type of hesitancy and timidness, I expect you, at least in that realm, to criticize them. And then the last thing I'm going to say, because I do see that we have, you know, uh, Jonathan coming up right after me, is the, I remember when he talked last time, I can't remember when it was, but he made a very poignant point. And sometimes I think when we have these conversations, we have to say some ugly truths about ourselves. How much do we really care? And I feel like that's something that people really got to start asking themselves. How much do we really care? Because I remember was having the conversation with um, my brother about the unfortunate, you know, disgusting, you know, police brutality that happened to that young gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were like, they protested. They had a whole bunch of people come out. I was like, we were already little. We were taking bets. We're like, okay, how many more months before we see the next one? And it was yeah. like, it's probably going to be one in the fall. There's probably going to be one, you know, coming, you know, you know, uh, in December, who knows, in the summer. This, there's going to be another one. And the same thing is going to happen. And there's going to be protests. And there's probably going to be video. And there's going to be someone calling for peaceful protests. And I'm going to be like, yeah, and nothing's going to happen. I mean, what we learned from 2020, because you can have 20 million people in the streets or whatever the hell it was, and nothing will change. So why do that again? I mean, like, honestly, you know, like the lesson with that, with that told us, like, I don't even expect people to like mobilize again, because what we learned is that you can have the largest number the largest protest movement in American history in terms of bodies in the street. And it changes absolutely nothing. And sometimes I feel like, cause I, I guess I'm still not at the point where I'm ready to say this hard truth to certain people and I have this, this particular, like, you know, police brutality converse conversation. I want to tell people and when they talk to me, as particularly you know, like people I'm close to, I'm like, you don't care enough to do what is necessary to change the fact of police brutality because you are still more you st- are still more secure in the idea of a police type figure being around than you care about stopping police brutality that mm-hmm. security of having police in there you care even if it may be con- uh, subconscious you care more about the fact of that police being there than you do about police brutality when you see it it does make you feel a certain way you do feel hurt but at the end of the day, you're not hurt enough or you're not, you know, secure enough in understanding what would look like if we were to remove that uh, institution. And so, you know, when Jonathan made that point about, you know, I forgot exactly what he was talking about. But I remember it was pretty much like, oh, pretty much around like how much do we actually care? And he was mm-hmm. talking, about, you know, go out and, you know, help someone. And just don't tell anyone about it. So that just got me thinking as I saw he was next up. But, you know, this is an awesome conversation. I enjoy talking to you, Bree. I love your conversation. You have a good it's one. It's always a pleasure, Eric, whether or not you're my cousin, you know. 
<laughs> that, that's uh, uh, I'm your cousin in your mind. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. Keep it faith, Eric. All right. Not quite yet, Jonathan. We know we're doing one from the front, one from the middle. So I'm going to go to Hannah next. What's on your mind tonight, Hannah? Can you unmute yourself? Yeah, I got there it. Go. Sorry. All right. No worries. Um, you got to bear with me because I'm not as well versed. And We're all patient. This. Take your time. No, I mean, like, so pretty much like listening to all this I'm, and everything that I listen to, everything that I pay attention to, yada, yada. Like, there is no left. Like, who is the left? There is no left. Say more. Um, like there, no one. Uh, I feel like the left is just an idea that we all have, and no one's acting on it. And we all, you know, we're all we're all falling into this cycle of, you know, what what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act. You know, like the left is us. <laughs> you know, the people. Like, I feel like I should be talking to the chat and, you know, like getting people riled up, you know, to join Shama and the working people's party. Like there's there's never been a time we've been told time and time again, we are not wanted. Our ideas are we're not, you know, so like we are the left, the people like we like and we always come back to organizing. And I'm just like. How do we just sit back and just listen to this stuff? It's like start talking to your coworkers, chat. Start talking to your family. Seriously, like we are our last resort. It's DIY this right now. It's we are our last resort. Like we're running out of time. Like all of these conversations just make like I understand and I get them all, but I'm just getting more and more more um, restless. Because, like, I'm feeling like I have to do this myself, but I'm a nobody, you know? Like, I'm just extremely frustrated and pissed, you know? Like, why can't we use our anger to do something good? There's nothing wrong with anger, you know? It's like, I'm working two jobs to freaking support my parents who are about to die, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, I grew up poor. I'm middle class now, you know, but... It still sucks. Why do like why are we still sitting back, chat, people listening, start talking to your coworkers. Like seriously, this is like the time is now. Like seriously, it's like it's really frustrating, I just gotta say. Can people in the chat hit let's say a um what are our emoji options? I don't know. Pick one. A fire, a fire emoji. If you, if your workplace is already unionized. My workplace is unionized, and we're talking about striking again. And do you know what's going to hold us back? What? The fact that our classified barely make work, barely get a raise. Started like twenty years ago, starting at eight fifty, and barely got a ten dollar raise in the last twenty years. They're not going to strike because they don't have the money to like mm-hmm. what it like. We are our last resort people. Seriously. I mean, that is what was part. I mean, among other things, so frustrating about the real workers strike is because the Senate is one of the better funded unions that are there. But I forget what guest was explaining this. Maybe it was Ross. 
Um, but they were saying that precisely because it was well-funded, union leadership felt this obligation not to like, quote unquote squander all these millions of dollars on a strike. And it's like, well, that's why you have the strike. <laughs> but you know, like who am I to say, I don't know. I always feel a little uncomfortable. It's not that easy though. Like what? what Okay, so uh, I'm going to tell people where I am. I'm at the Community College of Philadelphia, the mm-hmm. major, the main co- community college, the one community college in Philadelphia. We have the best package in our city, you know, like, and someone in the chat, just get a better job. It's not that easy to get a better job. You know, that like... You said that. I don't well, know who said, said that. that. <laughs> like, it's like, you know, like... I I am a middle class. I've earned I worked my way up to to middle class. Mm. And it is still hard to to do anything. You know, it's like I don't understand you I mean, know I think why you partly why... answering your own question, right? Like part of the reason is that people feel overwhelmed by just the daily grind of having to work to sustain. They feel like there's precarity in the work place and they don't necessarily want to take risks when other people rely on them, their family members, etc. People just feel burnt out, generally speaking. I mean, that's one of the tricks of capitalism is get everybody to a point where they feel like they don't have the bandwidth to do anything else to try to improve the conditions. And that's, I mean, that's, I find that to be very real and relatable and understandable, but it's, you know, yeah, and I truly, I truly believe that, like, whoever it is, you know, like, like I don't know who it's going to be, but, like, it's going to be someone from the working class who knows what it's like not to have food on the table. It's not going to be some millionaire, somebody, you know, like, somebody who knows what it's like to fight, the what the fight feels like, right, already feels like, you know, they've been through it before. And they're like, no one knows how to sacrifice. People working two jobs right now know how to sacrifice. And they're not going to sacrifice for you because they're already sacrificing for their own family. And so to everybody in this chat, we like we owe the working class, you know, like we the power is the working class. So we have to communicate to everybody like that's our job right now. Like, that's the assignment, is to spread the word. The working class is the power. That's that's the only power that we have. Like, I'm so, like, I'm so tired of people just being able to sit back and just watch. You know, like, what's going to happen in 10 How much is food going to cost in 10 years? Like, no one's, no one's thinking practically. Like, seriously. Yeah. That's all I have to say. I don't really have anything else to say. No, I appreciate you calling in, Hannah. Really, you're, I mean, I, I you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, Jonathan, what's on your mind? Hey, uh, appreciate the shout out. I had some requests. Fahim wanted me to talk about the difference between wealth and capital. I got some other requests, but I have to be selfish. I just have to talk about why Voucher's a shithead. I'm just <laughs> going to do this for me. Right? He's got this weird dystopian uh, Nazi future that he's afraid of, but it's like, there's like a problem with conspiracy theories in general. And I love a good conspiracy as much as the next dude, but 
they can be weaponized. You know, if you if you have top secret military research in Nevada, you're going to leak a conspiracy about aliens to get those people to push all those lemmings off a cliff. If you want to release a vaccine uh, that's not been amply tested for efficacy and side effects, you're going to push a conspiracy about how it's going to turn your DNA into a 5G antenna for the Chinese mm -hmm. propaganda to get those lemmings pushed off the cliff. The only trick in all of magic is misdirection, right? Mm. So here's one. Uh, and Bausch would agree this is a horror show. You're going to have to rent life packages and you'll nominally have a few choices. You got Coke, Pepsi, Google, Amazon, and Disney. And you'll get a thing where you rent. It's going like, to include housing, transportation, food, entertainment, naturally, insurance, you know, but you'll have no choice. But you have like five or six options that aren't really, they don't really compete with each other. And there's going to be those people who have it and people without. But like, it's already true. The reason that the Elysium and the Hunger Games aren't going to happen is because it's happened. Like, the sky's fallen and you don't realize that if you live in Kickapoo, Florida, and you work for Disney and you rent from Kickapoo Real Estate, and then you learn that they're owned by, you know, a, a Orlando uh, a rental management company, and then they're owned by Southeastern Asset Management, and that's a subsidiary and fiduciary of the Disney Corporation. Like it's, all, and even if they're not, their stock is in the same portfolios of people whose portfolios is largely made up of Disney stock. So they live and die together. Like they don't compete with each other. The owners are all the same people. Like it's, Have you seen Sorry to Bother You? No, I haven't. Is it, is it saying what I'm saying right now? Yeah, there are these um, commercials that play in the universe of the movie uh -huh. uh, where the the corporation that the protagonist ends up working for also is running these commercials for a a work environment where they provide housing and food and clothes and they're describing it and picturing it and you're realizing that it's just a prison. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, you just, you, you, we have a place for you to stay. And like, it's like a pink and purple kind of looking, but like prison. And it, it 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 is a it's a dystopian you know world that upon closer inspection looks very close to reality just dressed up you know exaggerated just a little bit and what's been learned since Edward yeah. Bernays is that the illusion of choice must be maintained that's why yeah. it has to be like people like your Stoller monopoly antitrust lawyers like a lot of people still think monopoly means one company owns everything no it's when six companies are in a tacit agreement not to lower the commodity price below what they can fleece. That's mm -hmm. monopoly too. You know, they don't really, you think it's a coincidence that Pepsi and Coke both moved their cans from 12 to 16 ounces at the same time. And then that price went from a dollar to a dollar 19 at the same, that's not competition. They don't compete with each other. And even if they did, yeah. the corn syrup comes from the same people. Like the commodities futures market, is owned by the same people. It's not real competition. But the, po the point is... Yeah, Jen Briney, by the way, just did a great episode on the um, Ticketmaster stuff, speaking of. And more, more monopoly, monopolistic mm -hmm. paper. Yeah, we have, we have central planning vis-a-vis -vis the Fed, the likes of which Stalin never dreamed about. There's, there's more price fixing, which is the same thing as monopoly going on than ever. But, but back to why Voucher's a shithead. The point is, like, <laughs> what do you say to Stoller? Like, hey, Stoller, go to uh, someone who's dying because they can't get the health care they need and tell them what they should really be cared about you know like oh what's going to happen if uh, medicare goes up another half point as a percentage of gdp oh 
Tell like that's what they should be caring about when they when they're dying. What are you talking about? So when Vouch is like, oh, you and I don't understand how things could become, and I quote, infinitely worse if Donald Trump became president. Never mind that happened. It was a real thing that happened. Mm-hmm. So vis-a-vis modus tollens, it stands the reason that if we move from Trump to Biden, things could become infinitely better. So my question for Vouch is, what the actual fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? There's nothing there. There's like layers and layers of nothing. There's so many trail, away from trail. What the actual fuck are you saying? What the fuck are you talking about, Vouch? Like, and it's all nothing happens, and even the progressives don't do it, and it's always somebody else's fault. We were going to do a thing, but the parliamentarian said. We were going to mm. do a thing, but Nancy Pelosi said. We were going to not show up for work at the railroad, but the union leadership said, who plays golf with the fucking regional manager of the railroad or whatever. We were going to revolution, Brianna, but daddy said it wasn't okay. <laughs> well, who the fuck are these people? They're all just LARPing. Nobody's real. They're jokers who don't know they're jokers. Which brings me to the second reason why Vouch is a shithead. Remember when you said he got railroaded on Burgess's show with his friend? Like, what was the point there? Like, and his friend, don't remind me of his friend's name. I don't want to remember it. But I do remember the name of his show was something mm-hmm. like, Revolu- like, this is revolution. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about the deep irony of a, quote, I'm using air quotes now, revolutionary take on uh, uh, Force the Vote is that we need to play the duopolies game by the duopolies rules and not brook anything that could ever change that intransigent rule set. This is revolutionary. What is gaslighting when a word becomes the exact 180 degree opposite of what it means? If that's revolutionary, gaslighting has been achieved. Propaganda has been achieved. Ideology has been achieved. That is the opposite of revolutionary. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could remember exactly how that conversation went down, because as it was happening in real time, I... It was it was a really good example. And this is also what I liked about the Bosch conversation. Sometimes you get these really good crystallized examples of how people's ways of thinking are so demobilizing. Like it's just so crystal clear. And it was so crystal clear as they were talking to you. And they both kind of like pulled rank on you and got this serious tone in their voice. And they were like, well, actually. Well, actually. Yeah. It's like, and then they don't, for a guy who says, give me an argument, he won't brook one, you know? So there's some more uh, hypocrisy. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about, I mentioned the, the, um, the interview I was listening to on Crystal Kyle at the beginning of the podcast. And I've been debating that that was another really good moment um, like that. And I, I've been debating whether it's just like very petty for me to like comb all these together and like, you know, cut, cut up the pieces and like respond to each part of these parts of these arguments. No, is it, is it like petty, petty and pedantic and should I no, drop no, it? No, it's not petty. And as a debate bro, I've been resenting the attacks on debate bros, but so are you. You're excellent at debate. It's like what the difference between like a really good communicator, which is what everybody calls you, and a sophist is really how hollow your arguments are. And speaking mm-hmm. of pettiness, let's talk about the third reason Vouch is a shithead. <laughs> and this is like not just his schoolboy name calling, which is like, okay, uh, that's the language game they play in the space that he's in, whatever. That's their business. It's the hypocrisy of his schoolyard name called Link. This is a guy who in the same breath, when he called us all uh, subhumans, literally the same breath, you can't make this stuff up. He says that we are all, and I quote, in it for the aesthetic. Same <laughs> breath. 
What a fucking garbage thinker. Like, it's, it's the same problem with Robbie. I'm like, these guys aren't stupid. They're just brains are absolutely filled to the brim with litter. With just, it's just trashy, dirty thinking. They don't see anything clearly. Their heads are full of nonsense and bad ideas. And they don't purge any of them ever. And I don't know. I just can't even deal with it. I wouldn't stoop to name calling and threats. But in the interest of meeting people where they're at, Catch me outside, Santa Claus looking ass motherfucker. <laughs> Tear you a new asshole. Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I wouldn't do that, except that he, <laughs> that's his life. That's how he is, you know? Yeah. You're too nice. You, you try to make excuses for these people, and I appreciate it. But I, I like I'm, to think that when you get off of here, you go like, oh, God, I hate that fucking guy. Well, of course, but, like, what's the point? Like, all I have like, all I have is that you, you saw what happened with Sam Cedar. You know, I, it doesn't matter. Like, I raised my voice, you know, for 10 minutes in a three hour call, and I'm calling an angry black woman the next day on the internet. You know, I'm not, I'm not like can... trying to, I'm not being nice for the benefit of them. I'm being nice for the benefit of insulating myself against, you know, some fraction of the criticism that's going to come my way. You know? Meanwhile, they can spit vitriol for hours on end and catch. Of course, they can because that's their like. He mean. Did you notice when he basically admitted it, that his audience is a bunch of idiots, and like <laughs> it's clear the reason that he doesn't respect the electorate. He thinks they're all just like. Why does he think everyone's an idiot? Because that's who he's talking to every day. You know. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's so funny because I never talk. Look, I, I am not. I am not Jesus moving through the world talking to hundreds of people a day. You know, I'm not going to pretend that I'm touching the hands of, you know, 75 working class people every single day that I let. Like, you know, let's just be realistic. I'm a podcaster and a, a COVID-induced agoraphobe who's sitting up in my apartment mostly and doesn't leave unless I'm going on a run or going to the rising studio. However, what limited experience I have either from talking to people in the course of my daily life looking at the comment section on rising or wherever else I talk, talking to family members, talking to, you know, people out in the world, you know, I do, you know, occasionally, I mean, I'm sorry. It is oftentimes in an Uber. I'm sorry. It is just the fact of life. Oh, I forgive you. I, I'm it's, that's my bourgeois reality. That most of the people that I meet who I don't already know are in the context of an Uber or a Lyft ride. But like, I, I'm never not, it is never like, no one is stupid. In real life, everybody gets it because it's not about being smart or stupid. Like, they're just living life. Really I have never talked to a person that didn't respond. Now, these people would not agree with my solutions, but that didn't respond to the idea that there's a problem with health care and, and drug prices. I have never met someone who didn't respond to the idea that politicians are corrupt. I've never, like, every single person gets it. And half the time, they're bringing up the stuff on, on, on their own as I'm listening in the back, listening to Carly Simon. So yeah. I, I don't know, like this idea that audiences are stupid and people don't get X, Y, and Z. And the part of the conversation that really got me was like, you know, he said something about how like, but the audiences don't get this. And I'm like, well, Vosh, don't you think that if we actually pursued some of these, this stuff and taught the audience, like taught the public through acting, that would help? And he was like, well, yeah, but I'm like, okay, but stay with the yeah. Like we, we, to the extent that the audience doesn't understand stuff, that's on us. And by us, I mean the Democrats. Like to the extent that the Republicans, Republicans don't, aren't like more savvy. They don't like magically have all of these facts about the IRS and statistics. No, the, 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 Dem, 
it's not just messaging either. They're always like, oh, Republicans are better at messaging. No, Republicans messaging is attached to a policy proposal or a plan. And it's a shitty plan. That's not a compliment. But like, it's not just Republicans came out and said, everyone should be mad at the IRS. No, they said, we're defunding the IRS. Yes. They, they didn't say, let's abstractly hate trans people today. No. They said, here's like 20 laws to disenfranchise trans people and make it illegal for people to wear drag or now illegal to, to get uh, gender-affirming care in some states. You have to begrudgingly respect the praxis of it all, whereas we just bitch. Like, I don't want to defund the IRS. I want to change the tax code. I don't even want to defund uh, the police. I want to change the laws, like the shitty laws that come down on poor people so that they're not just a property-defending, poor-harassing group. Like, that doesn't have to be that way. But there, it comes with policy or proposals. You want, I want to but we never, we never, our stuff isn't even attached to anything. And if I say, like, let's attach, you know, uh, there, actually, there was an interesting moment around the, 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 student debt cancellation debate this year or last year where Biden decided to go ham for like a second and, or whoever was running his Twitter page, like started going hard in the paint and tweeting all the stuff about the PPP hypocrisy from the people who were criticizing it. And there was this weird feeling of momentum and it was so foreign as a progressive, as a, as someone on the left to feel momentum in the democratic party. And it's because there was a policy and it felt like Biden was doing it. And the, the, the emails were hitting the inbox and we all got the thing we could sign up for. And it felt like something was happening. And we felt like we were leading uh, uh, a messaging charge instead of follow like playing defense. Biden went on offense and it felt really good until, you know, the courts, um, stopped it. So the question becomes, was it designed to fail like that? Like, yeah. I mean, like, of course was, it was a play and then it runs it. So if, if all these people are nothing and they're all gestures who don't know their gestures, that puts you and your ilk in, in the awkward position of running commentary on what is essentially just a TV show as if it's real life, reinforcing for everyone that that is real life. The point isn't to turn all this on you. The point is to say that you can't just step outside of it. Like, you keep, we, nobody, none of us can just take a step and just not participate because that's them winning too. The whole point about mutual aid last time, you were like, this is a call to action. And it's fine if you took it that way, but it was more of a call against hypocrisy. You know, it was like that time I was like, you know, if I had that Bezos money, that Musk money, I'd be a shithead. I'm not that good of a person, mm. which is one of the reasons, like one of the trigger words for me is greed. Oh, corporate greed. It's like, if you think greed is the problem, you, what you're suggesting is that if we staff this system with different people, that it would behave differently. That's not what systemic means. Systemic means that the system has a life of its own apart from the individual, individuals that comprise it. Greedy or not, it's going to behave how it's going to behave because the incentive structure is where it's at. And now I lost my train of thought there, but. You're, yeah, you're saying that it's not just it. about it's not greed. It's like having the money and that's just like your material oh, that, reality. No, the, point, the point was that it's not about individuals and it's not about it's people pretending about being their better person than they really are it is that that was the point. 
of the uh, the mutual aid thing. And, and it's not about the mutual aid wasn't so much a call to action. It was a call against hypocrisy. And that you just got to stop thinking that you can one at a time these things and stop thinking that you can just step outside of the system unless yeah. you change your tack. I hear that, Jonathan. I hear that. I appreciate you calling in. Yeah, I got my rant out. I feel better. I I feel better also, Jonathan. <laughs> All right. Keep the y'all. Bye-bye. Uh, Bernard, if you're not a new face, I feel like I've only seen you a couple of times. So what's on your mind tonight? Gosh, this queue is so long. Dirk looks like a new face. Michelle, I haven't called on you in a while. Bernard, are you with us? Look at all these people. Okay, Bernard going once. Bernard going twice. All right. I'm going to go to... Is that Gerald Horn's photo? Omar, what's on your mind tonight, Omar? Hey, Bree. Howdy. Howdy. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about something that's a little tricky to talk about, um, but it was prompted by a conversation I heard on reparations, on Sabby's uh, call-in. Um, and I have to preface this by saying that I'm all about um, reparations. I'm completely on board with it. I think that companies that profited should be even bankrupted and uh, to, to pay back um, all the wealth that they extracted from uh, the the african-american community like just forced labor um and so one of the things that came up in that discussion is somebody mentioned uh native americans and a somebody that was talking to sabby um said well you know they have their treaties and just kind of dismissively said it like that and i'm like I had to call in and say, out of the 500 plus treaties that the U.S. government has signed uh, with Native American groups, uh, they have not lived up to hardly any of them, like almost zero. They've broken them. Mm -hmm. And so to me, like that kind of dismissiveness has not been a a uh, isolated event. And I think it's a generational thing because she was an older woman. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've heard this also from somebody in that same age range of that, that kind of dismissively talks about, you know, what the original, I, I hate to use this phrase, uh, but the original sin, uh, like the, the only reason why this, why we're here, why, you know, this land was available for uh, the Homestead Act uh, and all this land um, <laughs> that was used for plantations was because of the uh, genocide and the ethnic cleansing of Native Americans. And 
you know, to me that that needs to, that can be talked about without it coming from a uh, oppression Olympics, uh, kind of acknowledging, even acknowledging, you know, with, you know, the due respect that it, that it merits without it, like kind of derailing the conversation about reparations. And the people that I hear talk about this, like the, the best that they kind of walk that line is Gerald Horn uh, and also um, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And I think that like the left uh, needs those two uh, figures to, to kind of educate people about that because it, it's just hardly a, an issue that's even portrayed in in movies and media it, i mean there's plenty of movies about the holocaust about slavery but you don't really see uh all any portrayal of the genocide that happened and and, it, and it's kind of damning <laughs> to this founding myth of this of this country so that was just a long-winded way of uh asking you to please invite those two people, those two historians on to, to kind of talk about the, these issues of like how these two, uh, how the experience of indigenous people and black people connect, um, how they, they kind of fed off of each other. Cause Gerald Horn has talked about the origins of white supremacy, even going back to the, um, to the crusades to the Crusades where you had this demon, demonization of um, non-Europeans, uh, Muslims by Europeans to try to, you know, quote unquote, retake the, the Holy Land. Uh, and so, it, it, you know, it's not just, it doesn't just originate in America, like there, there's deeper roots and, and he keeps on writing books that go back another century. So, yeah, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to have Gerald Horn back on. Um, and who's who's the, who was what was the name of the other person you mentioned? Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. She's here in the Bay Area, and she uh, specializes in indigenous history of of America. So they they know each other, um, but. Yeah, like I've I've seen them together, but I've never seen them together, like kind of talk about in a focused way, like how these two issues relate. But yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to talk about them. Uh, sorry, talk to talk to them both uh, and about this issue. I will say that I think I, I so first first I'll say that it is it isn't it is dismissive to be like what about your treaties? That's like very obvious and clear. There is this thing that happens, though, sometimes when that is very frustrating to black Americans, where if we start talking about something that is black specific, like reparations, everybody's like reparations for black people. Everybody starts saying, what about, what about, what about in a way that doesn't the perception is doesn't happen when other groups advocate for their claims. And it feels like it is intended or has the effect, regardless of whether it's intended, of st stopping any forward movement on reparations for black people or any other black specific issue. 
there is a lot of discourse about the way that like black and brown as a as a phrase gets thrown around even when something very specific happens to black people in a way that you wouldn't expect like if someone you know shoots up a synagogue it's obviously an act of anti-semitism and people aren't saying oh this is a this is a harm to the faith community this is a harm to the muslim and jewish community no it's someone is anti-semitic and shot up a synagogue there's no need to like can they have this for a second like it's not why conflate like this shooter is anti-semitic and they shot up a like you do what i mean so yeah. I, 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 I don't know, like I, I'm not privy to whatever it was that you witnessed, but I, I wouldn't be surprised also if, if there's like, if that's, if that's part of what's going on yeah, is that no, people I, are frustrated with various, all legitimate compl- con- concerns and claims being conflated in a way that black people feel like disproportionately happens with our stuff and other people are allowed to have their space in their moment. But ours, our, our struggles, perhaps because of the role that the black struggle in this country has been kind of a stand in or because just because we've been historically the biggest population and all of that in terms of minority population, not anymore, obviously, but a lot of the civil rights have happened through the lens of black people that ours, ours are generalized in a way that other people's aren't generalized. And so that, sometimes that can come at the expense of fighting for things that specifically affect black people. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. I, and when I called in, I what I said is like, this is not to derail uh, and 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 to decenter, like the fact that this is about reparations. I just want to correct what was said about you know Native Americans having treaties yeah. in a dismissive way. Like I think, like I said, Gerald Horn has a great way of talking about these two issues without mm-hmm. one overshadowing the other. And yeah, it, every group has their own specific issues and especially black Americans, you know, all the trauma that that's, that's, you know, consistently been put upon black Americans like that. That's unique. That That's ongoing. Uh, yeah. What I'm saying is that like, there's kind of a internalization of like a colonialist erasure of of native americans even in the black community that i see and and that's not to you know take away like all all the talk about reparations and all the issues that that are there but i've seen it like consistently uh you know in my many years of life and, and like, I think that, you know, it's bigger than one person because we're living in this country, we're indoctrinated into that. So it's, it's not just one person's fault. We are swimming in it. And like I said, there's no, you know, coverage of that in the media, in, in uh, movies and film. Like there isn't just any, any like substantial works uh, that, that cover that. And so I think that Yeah, well I definitely love to see more more movies about Native Americans and not just through the lens of like you know, westerns. Yeah. And also like not necessarily just through the lens of tragedy either. Like I was playing some trivia game over the weekend 
and you know it was like a multiple choice question about I forget what it was but it was like about various tribes and which ones were which and I was able to deduce what the answer was um because of some rudimentary geographic understanding of of which ones were kind of eastern tribes and which ones were western and it got me to thinking about all of the diversity and the huge expanse of America and how all of these communities are interacting with each other and the differences between them and language differences and how like opaque that is. Cause I was kind of impressed with myself for even into it, this question and it made me reflect on how little I actually knew. Um, and so, yeah, I would love to see no disrespect to the, you know, many wonderful world war two movies that exist out there. And I understand why there's such a focus on that, but you know, I would I would love to see about uh, some some films about some other time periods and peoples. So I completely agree with you there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I hope yeah you you are able to contact them and hope you you can get them on. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for calling in, Omar. All right. Thank all you. right. I, it's like at the three o'clock hour and I only wanted to do, I'm sorry, the three hour mark and I only wanted to do two, but there was like one minute left in this hour. So Tyler, if you can make, be kind of pithy. I will be, get in here. I will be pithy as sin. First of all, Sean says, hey, as well. It's the the two gay boys who listen on the couch to you. So hi. Hey, Sean. <laughs> so um, I'll be super, super quick. Um, first of all, I want to eat crow. And I did see how you ended up getting along with or coming, finding some common ground with Bosch. Um, <laughs> did some research on him. And I kind of really see his style, which is like stealing the alt-right inflammatory messaging styles, the dramatic like video screen grabs. But what cracked me up, and you kind of touched on this, is that he spoke about the illiteracy of like all listeners, which is completely not only dismissive and mm-hmm. really in a lot of ways what led to so many people voting for Trump against Hillary mm-hmm. is the dismissiveness and just the insulting of a crowd. Like that's going to suddenly win them over. Mm-hmm. But then he also admitted that he didn't even watch your own videos, which I was like, how mm-hmm. do you come up media literacy when you're an idiot? Like not that he's an idiot. That was a low blow. Sorry. I just had a <laughs> Brie Anna moment for a second there, but like what the crap dude, like don't insult for not for being media illiterate and then not even read medium. Anyway, I digress. Yes. Especially if you're going to do like an hour long, like I understand like things come up and you saw Twitter, you saw something on Twitter and so you give an off the cuff opinion. But if you're going to do like an hour long hate video on somebody and you haven't even listened to the clip, I mean, it's like. Right. Like that's not even a receipt at that point. Like that's like a corner of a receipt. Dude. Like, <laughs> what on earth? Um, but anyways, the, the big question I just wanted to ask, um, I had more thoughts, but I'll, like I said, I'll be pithy, pithy. Um, <laughs> I'm curious because what he said that stuck with me and like, I don't want to say scared me because it's a little dramatic, but here we are. Scared me is he's like, you know, we need another January 6th to really galvanize um, progressives. And like, I just can't imagine out loud saying that is a valid plan. Like, let's wait for another coup. You know what I mean? So like, I'm just curious to hear from you. Like, what, what is it going to take to truly galvanize? And I know that's a huge question. I know that's why it's, it's confusing, right? Because he like yeah. very much doesn't want there to be another Trump. But you do want there to be another one six and you don't want to be an accelerationist, but you do believe that climate accelerationism is what's ultimately going to be the thing that kicks everybody into gear. Look, accelerationist arguments are very tricky because nobody wants to be the one that pulls the lever that causes the disaster because God knows 
what the net downsides versus upsides are going to be. And nobody wants that blood on their hands, right? Like that, that is what it is. At the same time, I think that there is this recognition that a jolt is required. And we're all just kind of dancing around that. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like my mild version of that is to say, okay, as a, as a person who's in media, my job is to heighten the contradictions with the, you know, between what the democratic parties say they're about and what they're actually about with the hope that making those contradictions more explicit will cause there to be a jolt without bringing on some like horrible right-wing hellscape, right? That there can be a jolt within the left that at least makes the left transforms like the left party into a fighting party or creates a third party that is able to serve that function, you know, and that we can get to a place where we don't live in this 50, 50 divided country, which is like a little too convenient for my taste. But, you know, we get to a place where we're having elections that look like FDR's elections where every state, but Vermont goes for our person, you know, but that, you know, I don't know. Like that's, that's as far as I'm willing to go on my personal behavior. But I also am not going to sit here and say that I don't, I don't sometimes think that, yeah, it is going to take something bigger. It is going to take something worse happening. It is going to take a, a, a coup, people burning down more police stations, uh, some level of political violence, environmentalists blowing up pipelines, you know, things that are morally on the line. Yeah. And, you know, one final thought, because I want to be quick for you. Um, it's funny to me that he said that that will be what it takes to galvanize when he literally wants us to fall in line and not do anything at all that poses, you know, opposes the right, which I know is what you've already said as well. So I'm not trying to rehash everything, but it's just, he really, there's such a lack of depth and all it is is like pyrotechnics with all of his arguments. So, but you did find some common ground. I don't want to potentially take away from the depth that he has, but he he spent more time saying don't talk about force the vote than he did anything else. And he also wanted to stop. And it just cracked it just cracked me up. Is all I'll wrap up with that. Yeah. Yeah, for all of the energy people you like if you just had made an argument, we could all drop it. It's like this it's this weird I don't know. Have you ever been in a, like a fight with like a partner? Or something. Not not Sean. He would never do this. Oh, you but, should meet Sean. He's a cancer, by the way. He's such a cancer. <laughs> okay, well then he will fight with you. Mercurial sort, those water signs. No, but like where where it's like if you could just get it out, it would be over. <laughs> you right. know, like just let me say the thing and we could just dead this. Like that's that's a little what it what it felt like. And yeah. that was also anyway. Sean last night with me, by the way, when I couldn't pick where to eat. So for what it's worth. It's very on brand. So on that note, have a wonderful night. Thank you for all you do. Sean's laughing at me and giving me a dirty look. So LOL. Have a night. <laughs> have a good night to both of you. You guys are great. Night Thank rain. you to all for calling in. This has been a fun call in. You know me. I'd be like, it's going to be short and sweet. And here we are three hours later because I can't quit you. I will probably see you on Thursday, although I know I've been flirting with this idea of doing only one a week. We'll see if the spirit moves me. If you know, you'll know. 
Love you guys. Take care of yourselves. Keep Wish it I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. That every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. That every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this, it feels just like this, it feels I wish I had a time machine, wish I had a better rhyming scheme, wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lima bean, I wish that I could spread my wings, yeah. I wish that I had seven limbs yeah. That way I'd hold on to everything And laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things I wish I spoke fluent Spanish Dímelo, dímelo At least I kinda understand it <laughs> Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit And get so large I could play pool with the planets yeah. I wish I was an astronaut I wish I knew more classic rock <laughs> Focused on myself You can help me wish but I would